Howdy, everybody, and welcome to another BP Movie Journal, the show we do where we talk about the stuff we've seen since the last time we did one of these. I'm David. I'm Tyler. Really yeah. enjoying this. You've, you're really like you're giving it something. I appreciate it. it you know what it was? It was, uh, it was like um, I have. It's been a month, mm-hmm. and I was like, if I second guess myself at all, I'm going to fuck up this intro. Sure. So I am going to just. <laughs> <laughs> Both barrels, yeah, yeah. full bore. Yeah. Uh, and it worked. I didn't fuck it up. Uh, yeah, it's been a month. The good thing about this is that I don't have a month's worth of movies necessarily to talk about. I have 18 movies to talk about. Yeah. But I did, over this past month, achieve my goal of over achieved my goal of averaging a movie a day. Mm-hmm. But I talked about 13 movies on the AFI uh, right, Fest right. wrap up couple of things i saw for work i can't talk about as much as i'd like to and uh i've started watching uh i watched one movie for our next profile which is in a scant two weeks yeah. we, we give ourselves 10 weeks to do these profiles and i always start two weeks out yeah that's about <laughs> that's about right for me um, but yeah i will watch some more of those movies but uh so that's why those, yeah those movies that's 16 movies that i watched this past yeah. month that we're not talking about we are talking about 18 movies i'm talking about all but like two movies that that i watched because they were rewatch some of these are rewatches that i haven't seen in quite a while i've got one rewatch um and then there are some it's like oh okay i, I have nothing new to bring to that all right, um, but now this, what this means is now I have to jump into um, talking about a movie that I saw a month ago. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, but uh, you can find uh, on the last movie journal I talked about two. Um, oh shit, uh, Miklos Jansko movies. That was why mm-hmm. I had six screeners that I was watching because there were six of his movies that have been restored and, and were playing. Um, and actually, I think there is still one or two left uh maybe just one left uh playing at the los Feliz three presented by the american cinematheque uh hungarian director um so i talked about the roundup and the red and the white so that means if you've, you've done the math i'll be talking about four jansko movies uh, on this movie journal starting with 1969's the confrontation which is his first color film the two movies despite the name the red and the white mm-hmm. it is just a clever name as it turns out it's in <laughs> black and white uh the confrontation is his first color film um and also it it jumps it doesn't jump quite to the the present day it takes place because it's 1969 i think it, i think it takes place in the late 40s like, uh post-war um uh, but it's also a, a jump into like the the I was going to say 20th century, but I guess the red and the white is early 20th century because it's like the 1919 Russian Revolution mm-hmm. or whatever. But it jumps ahead quite a, a, a long time and is in color um, and is also the first movie that is not specifically about the first of the, the movies in this list that is not specifically about war. Mm-hmm. It's um, uh, it, it's it, it's basically about a group of students from the sort of like communist college coming to, uh, to visit a seminary with the intention of debating the seminary students. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they, they do that, but there's also, here, here's the thing. The thing, I think that I found about Miklos Jansko that I really liked because I really tend to agree with it. Mm-hmm. I am 
a leftist. Mm-hmm. He is clearly a leftist, but he spends way more time being suspicious of those in power on the left than he does, um, you know, uh, uh, attacking the right. So mostly, yeah. so yeah, even though yes, they come to debate, what really ends up happening is over the course of this movie, the, the, um, the, the, the communist students sort of, tear themselves apart, lose their unity. A few of them end up sort of compromising their values in order to maintain power over the group. Mm. And some people who stick by their values end up getting like, you know, shown the door or, or, yeah. or, or whatever. Um, so it's, it's the, the first movie of in this, in this list that is not uh, violent, but it is still about people at yeah. war with themselves in a, <laughs> in, in a way. Um, and it also really is, I mean, the thing that he, is that Dijansko is known for is very long takes. I talked about it a little bit last week, but they keep getting longer. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, this is just, just the beginning, but, um, uh, but we're still, well, you know what? I'll, I'll save that for later, later movies. Um, including the second one, which is, uh, also from 1969, the same year. Um, it's called winter wind. And, uh, it is about, I had to look this up. It takes place in the days leading up to the 1934 assassination of Yugoslavia's King Alexander. Okay. That's, and there's text on screen. I know that exactly like, what you're talking about. <laughs> there's text on screen that, that, um, uh, uh, explains that at the beginning, but, uh, really it's about this one guy who's like kind of a leader in this leftist group. It's, it's the same thing who is like, still still stuck with his or still sticks by his ideals, but has become completely disillusioned by the fact that everyone else that is his comrade, um, is, is compromising. That is basically, this is a recurring theme in the, in the, the color part of (laughs) Jansko's career is that as soon as the, progressives, as soon as the idealists get into power, they almost immediately, put their beliefs on the back burner and maintaining power becomes more important. Yeah. That is something that, that you see over and over again in, in, in his movies. And winter wind has these fantastically long, uh, complex, uh, shots. This one's also in color. The rest of them are in color. Um, uh, but it's mostly just like a, jaded man with a gun walking around uh, for her. That's another thing about his movies. They're short. So it's for like 85 minutes nice. or, or, or whatever. But, um, uh, really liked both of those and I've got two more to talk about, but now it's to you. All right. So my first film is a rewatch, but I should say it's been 20, it, it had been 26 years since I saw it. So, uh, I didn't have a, a, a great, memory of it uh, despite owning it uh and so i rewatched chris noonan's babe oh wow um, yeah i haven't seen that in forever yeah and uh, i don't remember what uh, inspired it jen and i wanted to watch something light and like ostensibly for kids and i'd been l- listening to basically uh old siskel and ebert reviews and i forgot how much gene siskel loved babe um <clears throat> And so I thought like, oh, you know what? Let's, let's give this a shot. And yeah, so it's been a while for you as well. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. it's, it's a really, uh, I'm not as over the moon about it as, as Gene Siskel was, but, uh, it, it's, there's such a novelty to it. I'd say specifically in its tone and pacing. Uh, 
Now, Chris Noonan's the director. George Miller's the producer. And then he would go on to direct Babe Pig in the City. And I did not... I did not know really who George Miller was when I first mm-hmm. saw it. Uh, and so, but then once, you know, you get older and you realize, uh, and you sort of discover the, the Mad Max movies and you're like, wait, so that's the guy that produced babe and then directed babe pig in the city. Yeah. And he also did happy feet. What, what the hell's going on here? It's like Mel Brooks producing yeah. uh, <laughs> the elephant man. man. Yeah. And there's another one, right? There is another one. And I can't remember okay. what it is, but, um, but yeah, but then you go, but it's like, it's easy to, to think like, oh, these are two completely opposite things. Then you go and watch Babe, and then especially Babe, Pig in the City. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, no, he, no, he's there. Oh, and so I've seen Babe, Pig in the City way more recently. I, okay. I was, yeah, I was wondering how much of it is in the first one as well. Because he's not, I mean, it's, it's still there. There is a certain manic pacing to it that it took me a while to get into because I, for some reason, I remembered Babe as this kind of relaxed story where you're just kind of letting the atmosphere of the farm sort of wash over you. But it really isn't. It's very episodic uh, and in a way that's perfectly fine, like these little vignettes. Yeah. Um, and sometimes it just goes like goes by really fast. Other times it really takes its time. And I think Chris Noonan and George Miller find a really wonderful balance there uh and it's a film that i think is visually gorgeous it's often quite funny um and i was very glad that i rewatched it and i do i would now like to rewatch babe pig in the city um jen had a jen and i watched it and she hadn't seen it in a long time and she's very sensitive to like treatment of animals in hollywood among other places and so she was kind of on edge the whole time but there's a lot more animatronic in that movie than you might really? think. It's really good animatronic. Um, and you can sort of tell, like, any time an animal could be seen as being in danger, you're able to see. It's like, okay, it's not quite as fluid and organic as, as, as uh, in, other, in other shots. Um, but I remember Babe Pig in the City. It's like, she's not going to watch that one. Like, that one is so dark. And it yeah. does often... If I remember correctly, there are a couple moments where it's like, that's a real pig that is dangling off that bridge. If I'm, if I'm not, and maybe I'm wrong. Maybe the animatronic got better in the, in the three years. I could be wrong. Um, but, uh, but yeah, even if I, even if I'm, I am wrong. And even if it is animatronic, it's still the, 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 the reality of the movie is still difficult for Jen to watch. So I would like to rewatch it. I think I'm going to be watching that one on my own though. But the first big solid, um, the other Mel Brooks movie I think we were both thinking of is The Fly. Yes, he that's right. That's right. Um, all right. So setting aside Miklos Jansko for, for a little bit, uh, it's the time of year. It's uh, uh, award season for your consideration screening time. The most wonderful time of the year, I think. It really is. Yes. Um, I actually do have a little song that I sing to Natalie about uh, the most. I'm not going to say it. It's oh, too embarrassing. Okay. okay. Um, uh, but uh, anyway, um, but something that happens this time of year is that there will be screenings and it'll be like reception to follow. And mm-hmm. it'll be like, I don't, this movie doesn't seem that interesting to me, but I have a free afternoon and after the movie, I'll get like a couple glasses of wine and some past hors d'oeuvres. Yeah. Yeah. At a fancy hotel. Yeah. I'll, I'll go to that. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes the movie ends up like being surprisingly good. Okay. I had a couple of these actually. I'll have one way later, uh, in this episode and probably two hours from now. <laughs> um, but uh, I went uh, to a screening of Patsy Ponsaroli's Old Henry. 
Oh, okay. Which is a Western starring Tim Blake Nelson. I'm very interested in it. Yeah. Um, uh, It's, I I mean, it's not like mind blowing, but it's a genre exercise that is um, well, super well crafted, very well acted by multiple people. Um, And uh, uh, just in a, a very enjoyable time with, I mean, I don't even want to say, I feel like if I had known going in that there was a twist that I might have guessed it earlier. Okay. But I, but I am saying to you now, it does have a surprise that I, I don't know, maybe other people, cause I tend to go into movies knowing almost nothing about them yeah. when I can. So maybe there is more of this in the, in the marketing that I'm aware, but I was very surprised that it was like, Oh, this movie is going to a place that I, uh, okay. or is including a thing I didn't see coming. Yeah. Um, I saw a trailer for it and I don't recall it okay. sort of putting it out there in that way. Um, but, uh, yeah, Tim Blake Nelson plays an old widow, mm-hmm. wid- widower, mm-hmm. um, who lives on a farm, an intentionally remote farm. He's like, he's got a, uh, 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 his his late wife's brother lives in the neighboring farm, played by uh, country music uh, singer Trace Adkins. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, Who's not a bad actor, by the way. I've seen uh, him in a couple of like I, I think shitty I like Christian his, films, but <laughs> yeah. but he's always re- he's a very imposing uh, yeah. figure. Yeah, I think I like his acting better than I like his version of country music. Uh, sure, that's personally. probably true. Yeah, I don't um, know if I've heard any. Uh, it just feels very. I think it's very radio country to me. Mm. Um, but uh anyway so he's clearly intentionally like is trying to stay as well you know away he's a he's a loner except he's got a son but he's he was clearly like he wants to be a dad to this son but clearly that was his late wife's job really and they're not that close there's a there's a lot of uh tension and then uh they has that thing they uh you've seen any movies before they um find a hurt uh sure uh guy in the out in the uh, the field they bring him inside find that he has a whole satchel full of cash on him and it turns out uh the next day the uh marshal from the next county over played by steven dorf oh. shows up and is like you know you're holding this guy in there he rubbed a stagecoach you gotta hand him over and then the guy says to old henry like no i'm the marshal those guys pretending to be the marshals are the ones who robbed the stagecoach. And so we don't know hmm. who, whom to believe. I would say, yeah, given a kind of a simple plan, uh, uh, in its own way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, uh, Steven Dorf is awesome. Really, really sure. chewing the scenery, um, in, in a lot of ways. And, uh, uh, I enjoyed it. Good. Um, I did having seen it like, having watched it so soon after the shooting, uh, on the set of rust or whatever, right. there's a lot of gun violence and it's a Western, um, especially there's a big shootout at the end. That's very well staged. Um, but I did, it did take me out of it a little bit. Cause sure. there was like a Q and a with Tim Blake Nelson afterwards. Um, and I was like, are people going to, is anyone going to ask? And then I was like, Oh wait, I'm remembering the like ass kissing crowd who goes to these type of things. Like, no, they're not going to ask. They're just going to praise the performance. You think, well, no one else is going to ask it, but I'm thinking of it. (laughs) But you're, you're kind of a, you're a punk. You have a punk sensibility. Right. But I was like, 
is doing that going to jeopardize my chance at a couple of glasses of free wine <laughs> and some past hors d'oeuvres? <laughs> uh, the past hors d'oeuvres at the reception, something I'd never seen past hors d'oeuvre form before. And I felt like it was kind of fun tie in with a Western tiny little bowls of chili. Oh, with like wooden spoons. It was kind really of, good too. Kind of adorable. Yeah. I do like the idea. Incidentally talking what you, as you were about, uh, uh, the, the, films about you know the 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 communist kids and stuff who like sell out their their values for power and you you sold out your punk sensibilities for a couple glasses of wine and some uh, some hors d'oeuvres yeah so no, I, yeah that's, but you know what i totally get it i think that's if if Nat, my wife natalie and i didn't have anything else in common a love of love of past hors d'oeuvres at a party <laughs> I've made the joke before that like there's a stereotype in LA that anytime you're at a party, everyone, the person you're talking to is looking over your shoulder to see if someone more, someone more important they could be right. talking to. I'm doing that too, but I'm just looking for the waiter with the past hors d'oeuvres. <laughs> that is the most important person in the room. <laughs> yeah. Um, I feel like I had some though. Oh yeah. You know what? This is a potential tease for patrons and those who might want to be patrons. I'm not sure. Where are you? You know, I know we're still mid mid pan- pandemic and everything, but mm-hmm. like, where are you with being able to do a celebrity sightings uh, episode again? Because I've got a couple. I usually I like to have, have five before we. I don't have anything. Okay, I'm, it's not that I'm. It's just I'm not really in a. You know, there there are places in the city where you're more likely to see them. Uh, you work in one of those places. Yeah, I mean, um, I'm not really going into to to work. Right, both right, of, right. I have two, and they're both screening related. Yeah. Um, and, and I definitely have seen celebrities when going to screenings and I've gone to a couple lately, but, uh, no, I don't have okay. anybody. Um, well, sooner or later we'll get back to the celebrity setting because okay. I saw it. Obviously I'm not going to count Tim Blake Nelson. He's there sure. for the thing, but there was a member, there was a member of the audience that I immediately recognized even with the mask on. Mm-hmm. So we'll someday we'll get to that. I did see a, uh, survive. It was hard to, tell at first because he had a mask on i don't know if this counts as a celebrity for you but i saw a former survivor player at the uh twin cities airport that's so that was uh and then next up for me is wes anderson's the french dispatch okay which i've come to realize i think long-time listeners of the show have known that i was a wes anderson skeptic for a long time Mm -hmm. and i think what i've realized from maybe grand budapest on is that my maybe my problem with Wes Anderson is when he isn't Wes Anderson enough hmm. that the more he steers in to his thing, like grand Budapest and French dispatch are both great. Now it's not, this isn't as good as grand Budapest, which um, I think might have overtaken fantastic Mr. Fox to be my favorite uh, Wes Anderson movie. Um, but uh, this is just like full on, almost to the point of self parody, Wes Anderson, the, okay. the French dispatch, but in a way that I, that I love. And also we've never, you know, he's only done full length narrative features. Whereas this is essentially a, like a right. anthology. Uh, it's all tied together by the idea that there's this New Yorker type magazine based in a, uh, fictional French city. Um, and your, the, the, the the movie unfolds as if you're reading in issues. There's like mm-hmm. a couple of short things up front, like a little travelogue type thing from Owen Wilson, and then there are three big stories that mm-hmm. that make up the 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 bulk of it. Um, and um, I'm, you haven't seen it yet, right? No, not yet. Yeah. Uh, 
uh, yeah, I, I think that's just all I, I needed was to see, uh, I, I, I just like when he, when he's at his most Wes Anderson, like I, I guess some of the things that bother me about his early films are, I think forced moments of pathos. Like mm-hmm. I think the kite flying scene in Rushmore, cause I right rewatched Rushmore and I remember like that was the part that turned me off back when I was like still in high school. Mm-hmm. And once again, it gets to the kite flying scene. And I'm like, this feels false. And it's another, I know you and I disagree on this cause we talked about it before, but the like, it's been a rough year dad thing. Yeah. It always takes me out of the movie. It feels like Wes Anderson saying like, Oh, I need to have this here. I need to have this moment. Whereas I think things like grand Budapest and French dispatch actually get to some very deep emotional places by appearing to be completely superficial and callous right. about things. Um, there's a, a character in the third, third main story, the final story, uh, played by I'm suddenly losing the actor's name, but Mike Yanagita from Fargo. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Steve Park. Yeah, I think that that yeah. does sound right. Um, yeah, he he and and Jeffrey Wright, who if I have to pay, I think if I have to pick a VIP of a, a VIP of the Jeffrey Wright escape, even though his storyline, the Javier Bridem. Um, not heavy but I'm Bernice del Toro. Um, getting my uh, yeah. Spanish speaking actors mixed up. Racist. Um, uh, is it? I don't know. I don't yeah. think so. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Sure. Cause, cause Harry Redem is like European. So it's not like I'm getting, he's not a Latino. So I'm not getting right. two yeah. Latinos mixed up. I'm getting two Hispanics mixed up, mixed up, but the Hispanic has to do about language, not yeah. ethnicity. I think. I, you know what? All winners of Best Supporting Actor look alike to me. That's all I say. Um, yeah, Mark Rylance. <laughs> is that J.K. Simmons? <laughs> yeah. Or is it uh, Martin Landau? Who's to say? Um, what was I going to say? I think the Benicio Del Toro story is my, my, my favorite, um, but Jeffrey Wright is the uh, the VIP. But yeah, he and, and Steve Park, I think, I think you're right, uh, have a moment that really sneaks up on you in, not mm. in a way that feels deterministic to me or, or, yeah. or schematic. But, uh, yeah, w- one of my favorite things though about, um, Wes Anderson movies is when new people are added to the, yeah, to the, and I know obviously, uh, I didn't, I never, the one I've never seen is Darjeeling limited. Mm. Um, but I guess Adrian Brody's also in Grand Budapest, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. He's amazing in, French dispatch. Mm-hmm. He's so funny. Um, but also you've got, um, Henry Winkler, uh, is I think making his, uh, his Wes Anderson debut. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you saw Toro is right. This is the, the first one. Yeah. I don't for think him. So, yeah. Uh, Lea These are all just in the first Timothy Chalamet, right? Has, term- has yeah. Not, Timothy yeah. Chalamet and, and Jeffrey Wright. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, one thing I will, some, I've seen some people like they love this, this part of the movie I'm sometimes a little bit disappointed and I understand why there's a in the third story there's like an action like a car chase sequence that's mm-hmm. completely animated okay and like a it's like I understand Wes Anderson's not working with the budget necessarily and also a little cartoon thing kind of fits in with the magazine thing sure I get it but there's a part of me that's that like oh, I wish I could have seen these right. actors actually doing this you know um uh, I had the same thing with, uh, and this is very, very, and a couple years ago, Takashi Miike's first love, which movie I loved, but it has 
it has one part again having to do with a car like driving out a driving through a window that is now in the first floor of a building um that is like there's no way he could have done that so i understand why he went animated for that one uh shot but it always kind of like makes me think i wish i could have seen that for real Hmm. all right well what do you now look i realize that we don't have uh you know we don't need to uh, pad out our uh, runtime or anything like that. But no. uh, I will say that that scene in Royal Tenenbaums, and we've talked about it before, uh, it's very effective for me. And it and it does work. If it were almost any other character, I'd say it wouldn't. But it's a character who has shown manic emotions before, which has been Stiller's character. He has a great deal of hostility towards his father and clearly thinks that his father can't do any. Right. is just in it for himself and he's extremely protective of his kids so his kid at that moment his kids have been in danger yeah which is his worst fear and then it was his father who saved them yeah and so we've seen all these other big emotions and now it's and now he's having to completely reassess um what uh, what he thinks of his father he also had like this huge scare of his worst fears uh, uh, coming true. Um, and so given that him finally just saying something as simple as it's been a rough year and just opening up a little bit and then having his voice crack a little bit, uh, Mm. it, it works for like understanding all of that. It's like, because if it were, if it was a different character, I don't think I would buy it. Um, but that character at that moment, I think it, I think it works well. And I think Gene Hackman's response to it is wonderful where it's just, he's such a dad in that moment where he says, it's been a rough year. He goes, Oh, I know it has Chazzy. And he just like, yeah. it's a, that moment really works for me. Maybe more from Gene Hackman's standpoint than Ben Stiller's. But I, I defend that moment. I, I think it, I think it works. And it is, it's uh but maybe part of it is that it's uh, right after the dog dies and mm. Wes Anderson kills he kills animals too often. There's the dog in Moonrise Kingdom. There's the cat in Grand Budapest. Oh, yeah. Um, I'm trying to think if there are any animals who get seriously hurt in, I mean, it's always like off screen, but like yeah. in French Dispatch, I don't remember. Uh, last little bit of trivia. Um, I mentioned Leo Sidhu in the first, the Benicio Zoro story. Um, Leo Sidhu and Denis Minochet play fellow prison guards. Okay. They played father and daughter in the opening scene of Inglorious Bastards. Oh, Somebody else pointed out that Leia Sidhu and Benicio Del Toro uh, were in Bond movies decades apart. Uh, wait, yeah, which one is Ben Del Toro? He's in one of the Timothy Dalton yeah, ones, right. I believe, in the 80s. Like, one of his earliest roles, yeah. if not well, if his they earliest. keep making these Bond movies, that's true. it's going to be like the Marvel thing of like, oh, two actors from Marvel. It's like, yeah, everybody, they, yeah, they've made a hundred Marvel movies. True, yeah. Everyone's been in Marvel. Um, yeah, boy, you watch uh, Spotlight and you're like, Son of a bitch. It's it's everyone. It may not be MCU. There's a couple, you know, there's Leah oh, Schreiber's short-lived uh, stint as Sabretooth. But, uh, yeah. but yeah. So. Leah Schreiber's also in French Dispatch, by the way. Is he? Oh. Uh, yeah, he's, there's also, like, there are so many great actors in these movies that you even get, like, Leah Schreiber and Elizabeth Moss have, like, they're both in the movie, like, in pretty small roles. I would say yeah. Leah Schreiber's role is at least very crucial, but it's okay. still a small role. Yeah, you know, there with somebody like a Wes Anderson, it's the type of filmmaker that when you hear that a certain actor 
is is in one of his films for the first time, you're just like, you're like yes, yes. <laughs> and somebody like Aliyev Schreiber is like, yes, I yeah. bet he could do that well. Uh, Jim Jarmusch is another one. Like when when somebody has been brought into uh, his stuff. Like, yes, that works for me. Yeah. Um, okay. This is another, uh, another rewatch. Uh, and I just, it's been a while since I saw it. And then I wound up watching it uh, not on purpose in two different classes. And it's Jonathan Demi's Philadelphia. Um, wow, it's been so long. It has been a very long ten- time since I saw it. Um, and it's, it's a, it's very interesting. Like when I think back on it, I think of it as, as you know, if, well acted and, and, you know, well written and just a very solid, sturdy movie, but nothing particularly. Uh, I, I didn't think of any like Jonathan Demi hallmarks when I think back on it. Hmm. Watching but, it. Yeah. Oh, it's everywhere. I'm sure. For one of the, I, incidentally, in, in, in rewatching it, I thought like, have we ever done an episode about POV? Uh, like a POV shot. And because oh, it's not okay. used very often in, in, in most movies. And he uses it constantly in this. He uses it a lot in Silence of the Lambs, but it's usually only Clarice's POV. Um, whereas here, we jump back and forth. Like even even uh, sometimes it's the POV of like one of the one of the guys that fires uh, Tom Hanks, and it's like, why are we in his POV? This it's very strange and jarring yeah. for the and, but it it starts to go away after the first forty five minutes. And then, and then he uses it a lot more sparingly and it's just like, yeah, that's, it's, it's odd. I don't think it's necessarily, I don't think he, he's, I don't think it's a mistake to have done it, but the film definitely is a lot more, it's a lot more uh, authored than Mm -hmm. I remembered, not merely that, but also the way the camera moves and incorporating elements that are purely stylistic. Like there's that scene that everybody, you know, I, I hate to put it this way. It's the, the Tom Hanks Oscar scene where he's talking about this amazing opera. And as he's describing it and he's getting more into it, the camera like takes this sort of Dutch angle that's, that's looking down on him and it's an extreme close up. And then there's a red filter, uh, that is not in the, oh, the okay. reality of yeah. these characters. It's putting you, completely inside his mind. Um, and so when I think back on it, it's like, Oh yeah. Okay. And it got me thinking like, I should probably watch more Jonathan Demi as a, as a director. I've liked what I've seen. Um, and, uh, and yeah, it's definitely a film that I think warrants uh, a rewatch. Um, if you haven't seen it in a while and if you're a Jonathan Demi fan, which I feel like you are. Yeah, I definitely am. Um, but I haven't seen that one. I, I think I still have, it on DVD. Yeah. But I, I haven't seen it in a long time. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it might surprise you cause I don't, it, cause it surprised me cause I last saw it. I mean, it was probably high school when I last saw it. And again, you think back on it as a movie that is uh, like a slightly better, you know, scent of a woman, which is like, yeah, there's kind of these big speeches and, and that's basically, it's like, no, 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 there's much more to it than that stylistically. Uh, all right. Moving on to the first of two, Ridley Scott movies I'll be okay. talking about. This is uh, The Last Duel. Okay. The shorter, at, at, at a mere two hours and 32 minutes, the shorter Ridley Scott <laughs> movie of 2021. Um, and I, uh, I, I I think we talked about, like, um, I can't remember if this is on air or, or not, but often with certain directors, I'm only as excited 
my excitement is based on how much I liked the last movie of theirs sure. that I saw. And I did the, the last Ridley Scott movie I saw, I think would have been all the money in the world, which I thought was, uh, yeah. kind of an endurance test. Yeah. Um, Christopher Plummer is very good as we talked about right. when we did our Christopher Plummer episode, but, uh, I didn't care for that. And I was like, all right, here's another like dour based on a true story. Although one, you know, uh, 700 years ago or whatever. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, movie this is going to be a slog and the last duel is weirdly a lot of fun which is a weird thing to say for a movie that has yeah because it's like a Rashomon type thing and you see the rape scene twice yeah um, so it's a weird thing to say for a like bloody mud caked movie with two rape scenes in it but it is weird oddly fun I think mm. it, it has fun with the um with the Rashomon type of like seeing the same story three different ways, because it does something. Um, well, I, I, I don't want to like, there is the first story you get is Matt Damon mm-hmm. and, um, he is very good friends with Adam driver. And so you're seeing the whole first third of the movie from his point of view. And I, I like that, but that part's, um, Th- that that scene has the most until the very end where you actually get to the duel has the most violence in it. And, but is also like it would the first, the Matt Damon part is, is the most like, Oh, this is what I expected from this movie. Mm-hmm. And then you start the Adam driver part and you realize, Oh, assumptions that I thought were just what the movie was about the nature of these two friendship is not true. <laughs> like this is, that's mm-hmm. completely just Matt Damon's character's assumption. Mm-hmm. And the way the, the, the immediacy with which I'm like, Oh, Adam driver feels an entirely different way with this situation, uh, was fun. And that, that level of, of surprise never went away. Oh, I also really exciting. Yeah. And, and it, cause it also, it doesn't do the, I keep comparing it to Rashomon or like showtimes, the affair, what really noted, what would really like, uh, um, stood out to me is that their stories, the actual facts of the stories don't really contradict one another. Mm-hmm. The main thing that, that becomes almost a joke is there's a single line of dialogue that is spoken by a different person in each, like Matt Damon says it in the Matt Damon one, Adam driver says it in the Adam driver one. And then in the Jody Comer one, Martin Sakis says it because mm-hmm. it's not something a man would say in this or not something a woman would say in, in this situation. So, um, but each, but that's the only major difference. Hmm. The facts are all true. It's just a matter of perspective. Um, which, which I think, especially as the movie goes on, allows you to, um, understand that that's happening and see things from like, when you see the rape scene the first time you see, like you're able to see how the attacker perceives it because you understand him, but also you see what's actually happening and you're like, no, this is a, this is a rape scene. Okay. Like it's not like trying to make it seem like, Oh, he thinks right. The, the, he, he thinks this is a consensual thing. I believe that he maybe does, but that's not the way that Ridley Scott is making the movie. Right. It's not purely subjective. Okay. It's, uh, it, it's, it's just these little touches that help you understand as the, as the movie goes on. Um, and I, it, the the Adam Driver part up until the rape scene is the most fun part of the movie, mostly because of Ben Affleck. I have been slow to like I know 
certain people like our editor at large, Scott and I are, have been Affleck backers for a long time. Right. I've started to, I think his, I think Scott's influence has started to wear off me, but this movie certainly doesn't help because he is, Ben Affleck is having a blast. And also I had, again, like I said, in other movies, I had not watched the trailer. I didn't know anything about it. Do you, have you seen what Ben Affleck looks like in this movie? Yeah. I, yeah. I, I think everybody looks horrible. Uh, no, he looks amazing. <laughs> He's got like short platinum blonde hair and a yeah. blonde goatee. He looks like, like a nineties, like corporate grunge rocker. <laughs> and I love it. I love everything about, uh, uh, and there's also some like anachronistic deliveries on Ben Affleck's part, you know, wh- which I think are intentional and like okay. add to the level of fun of the movie of like him being a, cause he's this libertine, this, you know, yeah. a hedonistic, uh, and also I'm, I'm just also a sucker for, uh, like medieval, politics and the idea of sure. like how does this system work like Matt Damon's character is clearly like okay he's land he's gentry but he's not a noble hmm. whereas Ben Affleck's character is noble but not royal but he also is because he's the cousin of the king uh, I love that kind of stuff and there's there's plenty of that I was I, I was so so surprised by how much I enjoyed the last duel. I was definitely, I was definitely curious about it. And then when I heard about the Rashomon thing, uh, mm-hmm. that definitely interested me, but yeah, I mean the, uh, I think for me, the, the last, uh, Ridley Scott movie was alien covenant, which as you which know, I, I yeah. hated so much. And I thought it was so wrongheaded in many ways. It's like, this was the guy that made the first one. What happened? Uh, and so I genuinely didn't, I didn't trust him as a director to pull off the Rashomon mm-hmm. thing. Um, but uh, I guess that could also be a function of, of the screenplay. But uh, but I've heard nothing and but good things the, about the, the film. The screenplay has, uh, it's a, uh, hold on. It's Ben Affleck and Matt Damon. And, and uh, it's someone else notable who. Uh, is it like. Is it like Nicole? Nicole Hollison. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which that—that's fantastic. That—that that is not the third name I expected. Uh, <laughs> yeah, when when I heard about this yeah. film, uh, okay, and then moving on you to well. um, my fifth of six Miklos Jansko movies. This is 1972's Red Psalm, and um, this is again all of his movies, or all of the movies in this collection, are tied to like real historical mm-hmm. uh, uh, events. But as they go on, they start getting more and more allegorical to until the point where the next one I'm talking about is like, is an allegory that is also about something real, but is allegory first. Mm-hmm. Red Psalm is a movie about, uh, I don't have my entire review in front of me and it's been, you know, three plus weeks since I <laughs> saw it, but it's about these, um, uh, like agricultural, like, uh, strikes like agrarian strikes that happened in the early 20th century. Um, but it also seems like these, these characters are performers in like a, a a dance about this. Like they often do like show their solidarity by Mm. linking arms and dancing. And like I said, as these, the shots keep getting longer in his movies, uh, they like you'll see long lines or circles of people like dance out of frame and then later in the shot come back into frame like hmm. still dancing um it's uh it, it's very fun but it, and then it has some things as it goes on that are like even more clearly allegorical where like one of the workers picks up a gun and fires 
one shot at a platoon of soldiers and they all like you know fall down dead um like bowling uh, yeah exactly so uh it's getting more into this 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 uh almost dreamlike uh uh place before we get to the the sixth one which we'll get to later okay uh but that's red salt all right well time to talk about ridley scott again uh which is okay. uh house of gucci a film that i believe i like less than you uh you oh, see yeah. you seem to uh I, enjoy it based I saw on your letterbox star rating yeah i saw it yesterday i feel like i should i, I should not follow you on letterbox because i like being surprised by whether you like a movie or not oh. uh, on the journal um well that's up to you yeah that is up to me yeah but uh, uh, but yeah you you go first but yeah i did like it a lot yeah i you know what i'll say this it, i mean i saw it at this point a few weeks ago um and and this happens sometimes you know i wrote the review shortly after i, I saw it and and i still i still think all the stuff that i thought which is i i think that the film is fairly shallow and I feel like there's a certain haughtiness to it and I feel like there's a, a condescension and I think there's actually quite a bit of schadenfreude go, uh, going on. However, certain things, I'd say mostly from a performance standpoint, uh, certain things have grown in my mind. Um, in, my rev- in my written review, available battleshipretention.com, um, the uh the only actor i really singled out was al pacino as far as like injecting his character with more with with depth and stuff uh i don't think i i don't think that's true anymore i still think that both in the writing and frankly in the performance i think that Maurizio, played by adam driver is a bit of a cipher um i would argue that's by design we'll get to that yeah um and and as insufferable as Jared Leto probably, not probably, is absolutely, undoubtedly in real life, (laughs) there is something noteworthy about what he is able to do with a character who is dumb and yet sympathetic. Yeah. Most most oafs (laughs) in movies uh, do not get our sympathy. But there are moments where he really is able to play. It's like, just because he's not particularly bright and not and not particularly articulate that doesn't mean that he doesn't feel things you know and it that's something that in the moment i was just so focused on him constantly being classified as an idiot by other characters uh and by the film uh i was so focused on that that when i think back it's like no you know what i did feel things when he feels betrayed i feel that i I did feel that and Um, also when he feels that he has let down his father yeah that's yeah, yeah. You, you feel you feel bad for him so yeah. i i do feel it's like also very funny yeah. one of my favorite uh did, did you know i'm sure you noticed this there's a scene he and al pacino are on one side of a conference table there's three guys on the other side mm-hmm. it's beautifully well appointed everyone's like everyone else is like dressed to the nines he's wearing like a sweatsuit, like uh, like yeah. he's one of Tony Soprano's gang. And then the other thing, did you notice in front of him, everyone else has like saucers and plates. He's got like a to-go cup with a straw from like the <laughs> yeah. like the stand on the corner. I yes. love those. I love that detail. Yeah, and and honestly, like it's it's tough. Like it, I feel like maybe I should maybe I should have embraced the film more as just a comedy. Really. Um, I feel like maybe if I had done that, I might have enjoyed it more. And then you're and getting I, to what I would, yeah, what I would say um, about it, yeah. But I think there's just something instinctively where even if it is a even if it is a, a comedy, 
I feel like there is a certain superior attitude, both in the script and in the and in the direction, that kept me from really embracing it. Uh, and also, just I, I there's so many damn needle drops, like in the in the film, that it got to be a little exhausting to me. Some of them are very good. Some are very good, and then, yeah. but after a while, it's just like. Shit, man, what am I watching? Fucking Guardians of the Galaxy? What is going on here? Yeah, there are uh, a lot to sort of so um, I, mark like what year it is. Like, yeah. oh, this is a disco yeah. song. Or like, yeah. oh, it's Christmas time. This is Frank Sinatra singing It's the Most Wonderful yeah. Time of the Year. Although I do like that. I guess the shot of them skiing when we mm-hmm. first meet Paula. I do like that skiing sequence. It's, you know, that's the thing is I I can't, I don't necessarily recommend the movie, but I I certainly can't write it off completely. There are a lot of good, sometimes even great elements, but just the way it adds up, it just feels like I don't want to level this at it because it's something that I try to reserve for movies that I really don't like, which is there doesn't seem to be a lot of curiosity about this. It really does seem to be like a really high budget, like tabloid uh, reenactment of things. Do you know what I mean when I say that? I, like, I, I do, but uh, I think I'll address a couple of you because I think the condescension thing is completely valid. Mm-hmm. Um, I, don't, I don't, but I also think that approaching it as a comedy first, which which I um, w- which I did um, almost instinctively, I think definitely helps. You've got, I mean, Lady Gaga and Jared Leto are both going very big. Al Pacino is mm-hmm. going very big too. Um, Jeremy Irons is doing like a sort of bitchy kind of comedy. Yeah. And then weirdly, I think Adam driver is in his own way, a tragic comic character because I feel like the, the cosmic joke on his character is that he is the one who thinks that he stands above the whole Gucci thing, mm-hmm. but is actually the most malleable, like doofus <laughs> of like he, he's, he, he's, he's the, he, he's so, uh, gullible and and and, yeah. and lacks vision of his of his own i wish he were more um, of a doofus honestly yeah i, I think he is a, a big doofus but i think but i also think the movie i think what you were getting about the lack of curiosity comes from the movie kind of tricking you into thinking it's the patrizia reggiana story sure where it's, i think it's really the Maurizio gucci story i think it's more curious about about him um, but in a curious, but standing back kind of way, like letting, yeah. um, his, his faults. Cause he, he goes from being like, Oh, he's the nice guy who doesn't want the whole Gucci thing. And, and right. he's being, he's, that's the, a, he's the Michael Corleone uh, uh, of this film. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, but then his turn into becoming one of the Gucci's isn't, the cold calculated like Michael Corleone right. thing. He is just being like buffeted about by other people who have bigger personalities yes. all the time. He's, yes. uh, I, I found that to be, I said, like I said, tragic comic. He's, I think he's a sad character, but also, um, kind of a clown at the same time. Uh, but I think that, um, one of the criticisms or at least, I don't know if you've seen the complaints from the Gucci family. Hmm. Uh, I hate to say it, but I'm less interested. Yeah, I'm not interested. (laughs) uh, But uh, I did read about them. And one of the things they're saying is that they accused the movie of glorifying Patrizia 
Regina and I'm like, did she watch the same movie that I did? She is like, she has one thing on her mind from the very beginning. Like the first yeah. time she meets, this is not a love story. She meets, she falls for quote unquote, meets Gucci because his last name is Gucci. Yeah. That's what perks her ears up. Like there, I don't think the movie is a positive portrayal of her. Not at, at all. all. At all. Um, and I, I, I kind of, uh, I kind of like that. Um, yeah, uh, I, I mostly found it funny, but then also there's, a lot of location photography. I really liked. I like a lot of the clothes. There's a lot of sure. Uh, a lot of things that I like about it. I like the way Adam driver rides a bicycle. Yeah. It's a to, nice moment. See, yeah. Uh, the, uh, you know, that's interesting. That glorify thing because it, go, it people know like the, the audiences that I have come in contact with at t- from time to time, which is like a Christian audience who, can't read movies and they don't understand context and to them anything that's on screen for any length of time they misread it as being glorified right Uh, being endorsed or being endorsed and it's like well no that's not like you need to be able to figure out what the director is doing with this thing the thing itself is neutral uh and yeah I, I imagine they think that like well we're spending so much time with her right surely we're glorifying it's like are you are you kidding me? Yeah. You know what? I did love Salma Hayek in the film. I thought <laughs> yeah. she was delightful. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, we haven't mentioned, uh, uh, is it Jack Houston? Um, uh, Jack Houston. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And we also haven't talked about the ridiculous Italian accents, which maybe that's why I was like, Oh, this is a comedy almost immediately because the Italian accents are so silly. And that's the thing is part of me is like, okay, well I do know a, that Al Pacino isn't great with accents. Lady Gaga is not an actress. <laughs> I don't know if you can say that anymore. Cause I'd like her in this and in a star is born. Oh, I, I love her in a star is born. I and just of mean course to say that like, one, she's not a, the one scene in the Sopranos where she's, uh, uh <laughs> you remember when AJ and his friends break into the oh, swimming yes, pool? Yes, yes. She's yes. like one of the three girls who's like, that's right. Sitting in the background and giggling or whatever. Uh, you know, and I believed that. <laughs> um, but yeah, I just mean to say that like, she's, she's still as, as, talented as she is she's not like a trained experienced actress and so the idea of her like doing an over-the-top accent part of me is like okay is this on purpose or is it the best she can do and then like uh and then obviously jared leto is just being over the top uh, because just, of the nature of the character but also jared leto clearly knows that his accent is funny because he says things that are funny in the accent. He says when he can't find his car and he's yeah. like, fuck a duck. But like it is like the accent. Yeah. It's, uh, I think yeah. I, you know, in, in the time that I, that since I have seen it and then talking to you, I think I do like it more than I did when I first saw it. Um, and I think contextualizing it more as a comedy, but at the same time, I, it certainly is not vice like that to me that is that's a, a film that like would is, is ostensibly a comedy but is clear it has that superior attitude um but it it remind it it feels more akin to me of i uh, with i Tanya, which is a movie i also didn't love okay um, i liked I Tanya that, too. that is a comedy um that is undeniably a comedy but yeah. it's just like it's like oh you think you're so much better than these characters and it frustrates me um but anyway okay we we talked too long about that well at least we, we can skip it when i get to it oh list. that's true that's true uh, nope we're not we're gonna <laughs> just repeat everything we said verbatim uh final but in, but in true last duel fashion you'll start <laughs> right and and reframe it uh final miklos jansko uh movies 1974's electra my love and this one is the i guess the 
is it the Greek tragedy Electra? I, I should I, w- I would have known this in high school because I took like a tr- Greek uh, oh, that's Greek uh, tragedy and comedy class. I could have told you all about who wrote. I don't know. I can tell you all about Aeschylus. Now oh, I yeah. don't remember anything with the name Aeschylus. But anyway, it's Electra. Um, it's Electra. <laughs> it's a story of Electra. Um, take place in something that's a little bit more modern, but it is also a uh, getting back to what I was saying before. A critique of the Hungarian Communist Party. Mm-hmm. If that's this is of uh, extra textual to me. If you were in Hungary in 1974, seeing it, it probably would have been very, very, very plain. But um, again, like you've got, like I mentioned with the character in Winter Wind, Elektra is the one pure person, and, uh, and um, the people in in power uh, have been compromised and are acting violently and thuggishly and selfishly to. To, to stay in power but it really doubles down on the thing i was talking about from the um from red psalm of being like liquid and stagey and and flowy and and, and dreamy and and people uh, because now you're completely divorced from like oh these are farm workers or it's like no these are people who are meeting in a field to swing around in circles and like make big speeches <laughs> like that's all that this is uh this is for um and uh, here's you actually do get at least as far as these uh, these six movies. Now the movie's only seventy five minutes, but it has a total of twelve shots in the oh, entire nice. movie. So that's really the apex, at least of these six movies of his his long take uh, thing. And when I say long take, I want to make I, I want to make it clear how much choreography there is. This isn't just like following one person or right. like static shot or whatever. The there are kind of uh, you and I both uh, saw and felt differently about um, Mysteries of Lisbon because we, we saw different right. versions. Yeah. But that Raul Ruiz also has that thing of being like, it feels like we're in a different shot now, but there hasn't actually been a cut. Yeah. The camera has just like moved from one setup to the next without cutting. And there's a lot of in Red Salmon Electric, my love in particular, but even going all the way back to the roundup and the red and the white, there's a lot of that kind of thing where he's thinking multiple setups and in, 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 in the uh, ahead and, and blocking for them and then just moving the camera, cycling the camera through those, those things. It's a really impressive uh, feed, especially as his films get more dreamy. It, it, hmm. it, I think adds to that. All right. Uh, next up uh, is the second, uh, not to be outdone by Ridley Scott, uh, Radu Yuda, the Romania actor or director, also has two movies coming out in America this year. I mean, I talked about Bad Luck Banging or Looney Porn, right? Um, one or two journals ago. Uh, this one, which uh, came out, actually was released before a day before here, and I think the year before in Romania, is called Uppercase Print, and it is. Also, I guess like the Miklosiansko uh, things, watching a lot of Eastern European movies based on uh, that are uh, interpolations or extractions of real events. But um, this is uh, based on the true story of a teenage boy in the 80s who scrawled some messages of protest on public walls mm-hmm. and was um, detained and questioned. And, and we've, we've learned about the investigation, about how the... the secret police uh, figure what they're actually called and i'm not sure if i wrote it in this part of the review that i can see anyway the secret police how they found him and what happened to him afterwards what happened to his family afterwards um 
but it's not a straight ahead dramatization. The actual parts, it's a, it's based on a play that's called, it's a type of play called a documentary play in which all of the dialogue is actual like transcripts Mm. and stuff like that. So that part of it, you've just got a few very like on a soundstage, very set up. Like, uh, this is the interrogation room, but it's kind of like bigger than uh, it should be. And then you've got the characters in question looking directly in the camera and just saying their lines with not a lot of emotion. And you're, that's, that's how you're following the main story. But then in between all of those, Rada Yuda is putting in different documentary style, kind of like news clips, which is something he also does in bad luck banging, um, in a different configuration and structure, but he's still, um, uh, showing you stuff often from the time or maybe a little earlier, a little later, but, uh, stuff that is real Romanian television for the most part. Um, that is often propagandistic or shows the way there's a, there's a, like a, the one that would really st- stood out to me was, um, a news, like a man on the street, like a news, uh, segment in which the news crew was like at stoplights running up to the cars of people who had honked their horn and, telling asking them if they were aware of the new city ordinance against honking your horn Hmm. and i think that's um it's very bizarre because this is like a real thing not a staged thing uh but also i think he's kind of commenting on the way that like an oppressive government turns the citizens against one another yeah um but the movies that like like uh bad luck banging and from what i understand about his earlier films which i now need to see but haven't seen uh like i uh uh, and i do not care if we go down in history as barbarians uh, it's very funny, but also very bitterly so. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and I think that um, the idea, I think, of a documentary play is to bring reality to life. But I think what he's commenting on here is showing how the official record is not reality. That, like, that's why he's having them, like, not show emotion. Everything is, you're hearing... You're hearing one thing about how officious the process was, and and we did this, and we did this, and we did this, and then we're, you're seeing um, actual footage of a society that uh, has so disappeared up inside itself to become like a parody, to to become a ridiculous, a ridiculous place, but also a place where terrible things happen to people. Hmm. Um, yeah, I've liked both of the Radio Yuta films uh, that have come out this year, so I look. I got to go back and watch his earlier ones. All right, you're up. All right, so this is uh, another rewatch. Uh, I watched it with Jen and uh, her brother. It's one of her favorite films, and one I haven't seen in quite a while. Uh, and that is uh, Chris Columbus's Adventures in Babysitting. Um, okay, you did you watch this recently? Yeah, if you. Uh which you actually did. I was going to say, if you listened to the episode that where Natalie and I talked about all the movies right, from her yes. childhood, all the, her favorite movies that we watched during the pandemic, which was the thing again, pandemic's long ago, but during like the year long, like right. not leaving your house type of thing. Every Saturday night or Friday night, I guess we would, uh, she would pick a movie that she loved that I hadn't seen. Uh, and you did actually listen to this episode, which means you have listened to one more episode of Battleship Retention than I have in the last decade. Uh, <laughs> I don't even know if I listened to the whole thing. Um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, Adventures of Babysitting was on that list. Uh, didn't didn't love it. Yeah, it's... I, I had a certain appreciation for it this time around because... Um, 
so what you know one of my many little side gigs is just doing script consulting from time to time and once i once i once i like hung my shingle out and started doing that i started using the word structure so much more um which then of course when when you're thinking in terms of of helping somebody else with with uh screenplay structure um you start to see it in existing films as well and while i do have major issues with some of the stuff that is inadvertently communicated about like the dangers of the city that's the main thing to me yeah and and the repeated thing of like, oh no, a black person. Oh, it turns out they're nice. Oh, they're nice. Oh, thank <laughs> yeah. God. Now, you know, I t- I was going to say to the film's credit, that's not the word. That's not the term. <laughs> yeah. Uh, not completely to its detriment. Uh, there are plenty of other city dwellers that are not black that are also treated as potentially yeah. dangerous. Yeah. That, that, but that, that is the fear of the yeah. city from the suburban point of view. Um, I think is I remember it being like a kid in the eighties mm-hmm. and living in the suburbs, that feeling of like when we'd ha- we'd like take a field trip to like some important museum or theater or something in, in the city and kids would be like, Oh, make sure you don't wear any red or blue. Like, right. Like, right. Th- yeah. like uh, I'm not uh, proud of that part of my yeah. childhood. And I also wonder if kids today probably feel differently because of the, the way the gentrification has, has, uh, changed so many downtowns where now downtowns sure. are like, uh, you know, quote unquote, like desirable, uh, uh, lifestyle type of living. I will say, and I, and, uh, this is something that both Jen and her brother who now lives in Chicago, uh, observed, which is like, and this is something I feel like maybe you probably observed when you were watching it. I don't recall. Um, geographically, the film's pretty much correct. That's good. Like very much on the South side. And as they move along, like the film is definitely moving along, like moving towards downtown from the South side. And, uh, yeah, they're not like just jumping to every major landmark or anything like that. Um, That reminds me, I know, uh, I always defend this movie because you hate it so much. Uh, my best friend's wedding, (laughs) you know what? Yeah. All right. I'll take it. (laughs) But like when they go to Chicago in that movie, I think if I remember correctly, I think they specifically mention flying into O'Hare mm-hmm. and then like Kimmer Diaz picks them up and then they're driving North on Lakeshore drive. It's like, where, sorry, did you like circle all the way around the city? Yeah. Like, why are you driving North? If you came into O'Hare, just a very complex series of road closures. Too. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, it's the one thing I don't like about my, my version's wedding. Um, Oh, so anyway, what I was saying is that like, so in watching the film, like, yes, there's that, which is, which is frustrating. Uh, but I will say that like, from an acting standpoint, our, our main four are all very charming and very fun, and they have really nice chemistry. But structurally, much to my surprise, and as, much, as generally inane as I find the story, everything that is paid off is set up at one point uh, and is paid off in a way that, that is... It's the kind of thing where, like, oh, like you just find yourself sort of having that thought. Um, even the idea, like the scene that I hate because it's just it, I, I cringed even as a kid when I saw it was when they uh, had to like sing the blues. Yeah, and yeah. and she and she starts getting into it, and then I but watching it this time, I was like, the movie starts with her in her room singing along to, uh, and then he kissed me, and so like. 
oh, she is musical in her own way. Right. Uh, And so it's like, and even if you, even if we weren't necessarily made to make that, meant to make that connection, uh, I, they, they at least suggested that she is aware of music and singing and dancing and stuff like that. And that's, and the idea of, of, of uh, the the Playboy that has the the information scrawled in it, and just all the steps that go along with uh, the the Daryl character has uh, a Playboy, and then the other character throws it out, and he goes, "No, that's my dad's." And so he sees the opportunity to get a new one, so he takes it, not because he's yeah. some kind of perv, but because he he is, but because he you know, oh no, this is my I could get in trouble because I lost it, and it's stuff like that where like. Even, I don't know, like, there's something about, I think, mainstream 80s comedies, action movies, whatever it is, even the ones I don't like seem to understand, like, no, you need to set things up if you're going to pay them off. And so we're going to do that, even if if it's in a a small way. So I I wound up appreciating, I don't necessarily like the movie, but I wound up appreciating it on a, on a. Uh, craft, a craftsmanship standpoint. So screenwriter David Simpkins has worked extensively in television. Mm. His only two feature film credits as a writer, Adventures Babysitting and then something from 2008 called Alien Raiders, <laughs> which stars Matthew St. <laughs> Patrick from uh, Six Feet Under. Oh, okay. Directed by a guy named Ben Rock. <laughs> I like that guy. Yeah. <laughs> um, All right. Uh, moving on. Right? I'm up next? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, second year in a row, a playwright who has never directed a movie directs it in an adaptation of one play and makes an amazing movie. Yeah. Last year was The Father. This year, The Humans is so good. Um, and I feel like a Philistine already because like, so many people I've talked to about The Humans are like, oh, yeah, I wanted to see that because I saw, I saw it on stage. I saw it in, on Broadway or whatever. And I'm like, oh, I'm... I'm dumb. I don't go to, I don't go to plays. It's like movies, <laughs> like movies and TV, uh, comic books. Uh, uh, anyway, but, uh, so it was all a surprise Street drummers. to, you know, it was a surprise to me. Um, including, uh, I, 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 I guessed this correctly immediately. Cause you've got this great cast. It's sort of the thing of like, well, no, that's, no, no, I'm not going to say that cause that's a, uh, different thing actually but uh you've got this great cast and then one of them is an actress i don't know the the name of even though she's been in a uh, really she's been in movies but and i realized oh she must have played the role on stage and she did and she's uh amazing her name's jane howdy shell howdy shell she's anyway uh but the rest of the cast is richard Richard jenkins stephen young beanie feldstein amy schumer and june squibb um and they are a uh it's a Thanksgiving movie. Um, the, uh, Beanie Feldstein and Stephen Young are a couple who have just moved into a new place in New York and they're having a Thanksgiving, but like they haven't unpacked everything. So everything's kind of, kind of, uh, bare. And, um, it's just a family talking, but there's also like, there's other elements I won't spoil. It gets into sort of genre type stuff, but, uh, mm-hmm. it's mostly just a family talking and it feels like it feels like these are these are the people who have uh, i think this, the thanksgiving setting is very uh germane very very pointed because 
these are the descendants of the white settlers, the people who, you know, uh, came over here, took the land from the Native Americans, the people who are in many ways uh, beneficiaries of years of privilege and white supremacy and stuff in that in, in many ways, but also they're just like a lower middle class family who like none of that is material to them. Like right. what are like, even if they were to recognize it, they're not in a position to do anything. Mm-hmm. They're, they're like barely holding it together yeah. themselves. It's, it's a movie that is about, it is about so much of life in America today, but also not ever, being overtly speechy about that it's it's also believably a movie about a family um and it's incredibly touching um but also very funny and i found myself i i I wish that i had seen this on stage because i'd be curious how they like there are a lot of there's a lot of silence in this movie which is not something i think of when i think of I, i think of that as being a little bit more cinematic um yeah but maybe i have a you know, most of the plays I've seen were put on by my high school theater troupe. So yeah. I don't know much about real plays. Um, well, if there's anybody who knows how to deal with an awkward silence, it's a high schooler. Yeah. <laughs> a high school theater, uh, 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 troupe, no less. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there's a, there's a lot of craft, a lot of filmic craft to this as there was with the, the father, different director, but, uh, uh, similar situation. Um, and I found it so, uh, so moving and so expansive, um, and but and also intimate at, at the at the same time, uh, and uh, yeah, uh, there are parts where I was very tense and I also teared up at one point too. Mm. So it's a uh, quite quite a quite a ride. All right, uh, uh, still you, right? Yeah, still yeah. me. Uh, this is not a movie from 2021. Going back to 2007, I good watched. Year. Uh, yeah, uh, and this is a movie that I'd heard was good from this year and had never seen it. Uh, 2007's uh, Chop Shop, directed by Ramin mm. Barani. Um, uh, this is, I can't remember. Did you forget? Did you, did you forget? I forget. Did you see this movie? I did not. Okay, so this is about a, uh, I guess, a homeless boy. There's homeless at the beginning of the movie uh, who is a schemer just trying to, like, keep him and his older sister uh, afloat. He finds odd jobs here and there. Some of them are, well, given his age, none of them are legal, but some of them are specifically illegal, you know, stealing uh, hubcaps and, and stuff like that. But he's also finding under the table, you know, paid uh, jobs. Uh, and he's got this plan to save enough money to buy a, essentially like a food truck that he and his sister will run to, to serve uh, all of the mechanics, because he he works in this uh, and stays in this garage that's in just a row of garages that's right not, right next to Shea Stadium. Uh, in the, where's Shea Stadium? Queens? Yeah. Well, Shea Stadium's not there anymore. Right. But I think Queens. I can't remember. Um, and uh, yeah, I've seen other later Ramin Barani stuff, um, and they have a lot of the same DNA about strivers and schemers and, and people who are uh, willing to do uh, what it takes to keep their heads uh, above, uh, above water. Um, uh, and the, 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 the craft and the naturalism here and the performances that he gets out of 
these uh, non-professional actors is is undeniable. It's a it's it's an intensely watchable uh, movie, even as it is depicting uh, extreme poverty and, and and stuff like that. My only minor complaint would be that I think uh, Ale, his name's Alejandro, everyone calls him Ale. Uh, the main character is a little bit too much of a cute street urchin. Like okay. he we know that he's doing things that are illegal, immoral, you know, but there's never any sense that he is a bad person. He's compromising anything of, of himself that, that, that this is just, he's doing this for the purest of intentions. And I, and I, I think there's a little bit of a sanded off edge. Sure. Um, given what, a real person who lives a life like Ali lives would actually be like would uh, would would have to be much more uh, compromised and battle hardened. Mm-hmm. I think. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to sixty percent on hotels. So whether it's cousin Kevin's kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin, or Becky's bachelorette bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Uh, all right, now it's your turn. Okay, so don't get me stuffed up. I don't know if it's a yeah. Is it an allergy? allergy thing? It must be an allergy thing. Yeah, um, we have something. If you need to take something, we've got uh, various types of uh, medicines. Yeah, and, but I don't want to get yeah. sleepy because we've got miles to go. Fair enough. Uh, okay, so uh, I I watched this movie on a plane, and a a more plain movie I cannot think of uh, than uh, is it Michael Matthews or Matthew Michaels? It's Michael Matthews, uh, Love and Monsters, starring Dylan O'Brien uh, from Career Enthusiasm. Yes, I've, I'm I'm catching up. I'm working my way through the current season, and yes. Um, and I had, you know what? I had seen part of this on somebody else's screen <laughs> on a different flight back in May. Uh, and so I think it's, st- and, and I remember just looking at it, just looking at that, thinking like, huh, looks kind of, you know, disposable and fun. And then lo and behold, here it is on my planes. Like, well, now we're talking. And uh, so I, I watched it and, uh, and it's, it's a perfectly, it's a perfectly fine film. It is everything you you would think it would be it's you know an end of the war end of the world movie where uh certain animals have been mutated due to various uh elements and and so people have to you know essentially go underground in bunkers and that sort of thing and dylan o'brien has a, a an old girlfriend who's at a bunker like 80 miles away and so he decides he wants to go see her on his own and but he's kind of a dork and uh, can't really handle himself and so he learns to do that very standard stuff um and and some of the monster encounters are are clever some of them are uh, frightening um there does come a moment where the the film sort of takes uh sort of a cliche turn and introduces like a, a villain type, but only for a moment. And he's introduced so late that you're just like, Oh, this feels almost like good plot desperation than anything organic. Um, but, uh, 
but yeah, the thing that, that got me again, it was a perfectly enjoyable movie, but who cares? Um, the thing that, that got me after a certain point is, I don't know why this is the movie that, that broke me on this, in this regard. There's just a certain tone to mainstream dialogue. Maybe it's, maybe it's a Marvel thing. Um, but it definitely feels like it's something that has come about in the last 10 plus years, uh, where just everything. And I understand the film is not trying to be like a heavy end of the world movie, Mm -hmm. but having characters just, just talking in just such a casual, often self deprecating tone or saying like the idea of, of, like if you said something and then I responded with it, it's like, Oh, well it's, it's a little hurtful. Like stuff yes. like that. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Oh, I know exactly what you mean. And it's, it's that kind of thing that I would also compare it to like zombie land, which is, I'd say a more overt comedy, but you see it everywhere. It's, it's in star Wars. It's in superhero, like anything that's mainstream, like for fear of being too serious, um, maybe that's the situation. And I think I'm, I'm glad you, mentioned Marvel because that's what I think of when I think of that and I think of like the the low point of that for me it's Civil War and like mm-hmm. just a general like Bucky and Sam relationship sure. it's like supposed to be antagonistic but respectful but like they don't ever actually like nothing they say is ever actually a joke it's just like a common cadence yeah yeah and, but I think it comes with the Marvel thing it comes from like Robert Downey Jr. as Tony Stark is very good at that. Like his yeah. his character being casual and flippant in against high like in a, a high stakes, like he's doing it right. And so I feel like the entire cinematic universe is kind of chasing that 2008 yeah. uh, uh, Robert Downey Jr. thing. Yeah, and I and I think that even within the within Marvel, I think they I think somebody like a Chris Hemsworth found his own way to do it. But it doesn't work with every character, nor does it work with every movie. Yeah. But in but increasingly, it's this. I don't know if it's detached. I don't know. I don't know how to describe it. But it is a very specific cadence that I'm seeing everywhere. And there's just like in watching this, which again, who, who cares about this movie? Not me. But for whatever reason, there's just like as the character, as a Dylan O'Brien character, who in his bunker, he's the guy who just. You know, he's essentially the cook because he gets very frightened easily and he freezes up and he's just he's not much help. Uh, And so when he is talking about leaving, just everybody in the bunker, regardless of age or anything like or level of maturity, they all sort of respond in that vaguely jokey way uh, where things are hinted at, but then paid off immediately. And uh, it just got really I don't know. It just got really exhausting to me. Not merely with this film, but it just got me thinking about just film in the last 10 years. And yeah, I think it probably is a Marvel situation and, and, uh, just being like, boy, I'm, I think I'm ready to be done with that. Okay. Uh, all right. I've got two more. And then after this, I just have one apiece. All right. right. Uh, so my next one is a rewatch movie from early 2021. I'm rewatching a second time and it's, Ramin Barani's The White Tiger. This is mm. because my most recent film independent, uh, someone we watched column is up. It's about Chop Shop, the movie for which Ramin Barani mm-hmm. won uh, the Someone to Watch Award at the Film Independent Spirit, uh, Independent Spirit Awards. And 
the white tiger, which is his new one. And I am convinced here's, here's what I, I, I talked about the white tiger multiple times in this podcast. I talked about it on the movie journal when I first watched it. And I talked about it in our, uh, top five of the year so far back in early July. So I'm not going to go too deep into the movie itself again. Here's what I'll talk about. This is like case in point. Look, I'm a big enough man to admit when I'm I'm wrong. Okay. And I had for a long time, I had said that like the trade off between theatrical experience and movies streaming was worth it because of the increased access and the democratization type of uh, argument. I felt that, but as I've seen great movies premiere on streaming services and then just disappear, I mean, they haven't disappeared. You can, you can go on Netflix and watch the white tiger right now, but it's, it doesn't feel like it was nominated for an Oscar and like no one cared. It's not, it's not, there's no, it's not, it doesn't feel like a tangible movie to people. And so no one is seeking it, seeking it out. And that's too bad because I think the movie is great. I think I, the specific reason that I brought up Ale in chop shop being a little bit like of a smooth edged, you know, uh, sanitized character is that, uh, Balram, I think is the, is the character's name in, in the white tiger, uh, played by yeah Balram played by Darsh Gurav, um, who was nominated for an independent spirit award, by the way, is not that the movie is almost, it's almost antagonistic toward its audience in the way of it's saying like very much putting you on this guy's side. Cause he's like, was raised, uh, poor was raised in a cast that is believe that they're no better than what they were born into that, that it's there that serving, a higher caste is an honor that, uh, and so you feel terrible for the situation he's in and the way that he's treated. And as the movie goes on and the steps that he takes to get himself out of that situation, go from being like, Oh, good for him to being like, Ooh, Ooh to the, to the point where the movie is, uh, uh, I feel like at least in the, in the, in the, in the uh, circles that I, travel in movies being described as um anti-capitalist or comments on capitalism Mm -hmm. i think that gets thrown around a bit too often i think movies are the movies we tend to see come from capitalist countries and are about that so like they're critiquing life i don't know if they're always sometimes i think people are putting their own like sure uh uh you know well i feel this way about our capitalist system and this movie speaks to something that i feel and therefore i'm projecting on the movie that that's an intentional thing uh which but now i'm talking myself out of it because intention doesn't filmmakers intention doesn't have to right. line up with what the movie ends up being. But I'm saying all this to say that like the white tigers, a movie that is so such a condemnation of capitalism by being about a character who uses it to his advantage. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and there's a, a lot of, it's also, I mean, it's a, a movie made in India that is so critical of Indian society and, and, and culture. Um, to see Pramila, Pramila Jayapal, is that her name? Um, uh, no, who's Pramila? Pramila Jayapal is from Brendan Lake Beckham. This is Priyanka Chopra in okay. this movie. Big star from India, big like Bollywood star who has since crossed over and become an American star. 
here she's playing an Indian American who comes to this country to to India and is horrified by the way things yeah. uh, these things take place. The movie uh, I don't want to sound like I'm talking down about Chop Shop. Chop Shop Shop is a very good movie, but to to see it's almost like Ramin Barani in his in in his personal quest like to express himself got to a point 15 years between movies where he was like, okay, motherfuckers <laughs> like gloves off. Uh, yeah. and, uh, the white tiger is incredible. It's an incredible movie. Hmm. Uh, back to still you, right? Oh, is it, yes, it always still me. This is the, the last. Yeah. Twofer. Um, I watched a, a, a documentary that is, as you're listening to this about to come out on Hulu, it's called the first wave directed by Matthew Heineman. <laughs> And it is a COVID documentary um, about, uh, I guess, the first wave. I have trouble thinking, like, I feel like because of who I am, that I was, like, able to work from home, and also because we live in a place where there were restrictions for the whole time. Right. Like, to me, the first wave was March 2020 until I got vaccinated. <laughs> like, sure. that was the first wave. But so it's, it, feel weird, it feels weird to be, to hear people talk about waves within that year. Like, to me, that was just a whole year. Yeah. Um, yeah, but, like summer 20, summer of this year, because I was just teaching online from March 2020 until the end of that semester. And this is my first semester yeah. being back on campus. So yeah, that all felt like one big yeah. thing for yeah. me. But anyway, the, the, this is the first wave and this is specifically, I thought like going in, I was like, Oh, this is going to be a, like, I'm not going to like this. I, th- I think it's, it's weird how movies like, uh, you know, I guess we jumped the gun because we didn't know about Delta and now Omicron or whatever. Right. Like, I think there was a time when it felt like, okay, we're coming out of this. Let's start looking back. And now that feels stupid because like, well, things almost immediately got worse yeah. again. So there's like the movie together that I hated. Um, uh, and so I thought like, Oh, is this going to be a movie that's like, let's look back. And when we were like, people were banging pots and pans out of windows to, which is like a New York, I guess people didn't know the cities. It didn't really happen here in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Cause we don't, I don't, we don't have as a different kind of city high rises. Yeah. But like, Every night at seven o'clock, you like bang pots and pans to thank the essential workers and, mm. uh, and, and stuff like that. And so there is some of that at the beginning, but then the, the, the focus narrows very quickly to, um, this is not about the first wave as we experienced it. This is about the first wave as people in a hospital, like hospital workers in New York city when, where things were terrible at the beginning, yeah. how they, how they experienced it. And so it ends up, it ended up becoming the opposite of what I thought, like, Oh, while I was like sitting at home and like, you know, vacillating between like, Oh, let's watch an entire season of crazy ex-girlfriend and having a panic attack or whatever. Right. Like this is what was going on in these people's lives. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think it's it's definitely more um, by being more specific, it, uh, it it avoided some of those like dumb COVID movie <laughs> traps. Um, and uh, there's also a really touching part because it it goes until like June, which means it includes protests. Sure. And yeah, there's a, there's a, there's a part where you see a doctor who one of the main people we've been following this entire time, um, uh, you, you've been seeing her like go through this thing of like losing patience left and right. And you're like, she's losing patience. Yeah, and losing yeah. patience. But, um, 
and then you see her like go I'm gonna get emotional let's talk about you. you see her go to the protest and she oh she's a black woman okay. and you see this young black man at the protest who's very emotional very angry and is yelling at a police officer and like getting up in his face threatening to become physical and you see her talk him down hmm. like not because she doesn't agree with him, but because she doesn't want him to be hurt. Yeah. And this, like you see the, it's a testament to who these people are that they're like, that helping people is, I'm getting emotional. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that they're just natural, naturally, uh, protective and want to help. It was, yeah. a, it's a, it's a touching movie. All right. I'm All right. embarrassing myself. Oh, <sighs> just say it's your allergies. Um, <laughs> yeah. The allergies made my voice itch. <laughs> Uh, David, the other movie that I decided to watch on a plane, which is probably dumb because it's not <laughs> the best place to watch any movie, but I finally at long last decided to watch a movie that you have said I would like. Uh, okay. it, it seems like, you know, probably eight times a year, you or I or both will say, oh, I saw this movie, you'd love yeah. it, and then neither of us do anything about it. Right. But I finally picked one. Okay. From last year. Don't remember how you say the last name of the director. Thomas Bazooka? Bazooka? Yeah. Yes. Uh, Let Him Go. Let Him Go. Oh, <laughs> loved it. <laughs> it's so good. Loved it, David. Yeah. Uh, 100% yeah. my kind of thing. You're, you're absolutely right. Um, and it is a... I'll say this. I, I didn't know... I mean, you had described some things about it, but... I remember it as being more of a drama, which it is. Yeah. I did not expect it to be as tense and suspenseful as it is. Yeah. Um, while, while never making a, a conscious shift into that mode, it's like, it's still, it has the same vibe throughout because we're, we're, we're kind of taking our, the film is taking its cues from its two main characters. Um, and so it's not as though it changes the type of lighting or the, the, the pacing of the cuts or anything like that. Like it still has that feeling, but just like when, um, I feel bad. I always forget his name. The guy, the, the uncle essentially, uh, that they first meet, like who's oh, one of the, from a uh, burn notice. <laughs> exactly. And yeah. Sicario and Sicario Jeffrey Donovan Jeffrey something Jeffrey Donovan that's yeah. right I knew it was Jeffrey something uh, like even just him like the way that he presents himself and just the way that he's smiling like it's just all in performance and all in reaction uh, Kevin Costner especially but Diane Lane is is great too don't get yeah. me wrong yeah. um, and so we're just we're so taking our cues from from them and it, it it's it's often a very difficult movie to to deal with mm. for reason for reasons that i won't say yeah. here um but uh nice to see um her name leslie is manville. Uh, leslie manville thank you yeah. um nice to see her i think good performance there the whole cast i think does a great job even like lesser known actors in smaller roles um but yeah it's it's it is uh, yeah it I found myself getting a little bit emotional on the plane uh, when watching it, even though the film is not, in my opinion, an emotional movie, but the, the fact of it and just seeing 
the, this couple and the way they interact and the looks they give each other just feels so organic. And that's usually where the emotion came in is just the stuff that they communicated non-verbally. Yeah. Um, it's a, such a marvelous film. Um, a couple of things about the cast. Um, cause you mentioned a lot of people, uh, but their daughter-in-law is played by Kaylee Carter, who was mm. so great in private life. I remember you saw the, uh, Paul Giamatti, uh, oh, yes, Hahn yes. movie private life. Um, oh, she's their, their niece in that. Um, and then also I, you probably don't remember this cause they didn't get the nomination, but I, for the, for our, the annual, the BPs, mm-hmm. uh, for the Bruce McGill award, best performance under 15 minutes of, of screen time the sheriff who comes to see Kevin Costner in the hospital. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I don't know if you remember that. I, I nominated him. And that's honestly, that's the kind of movie that features all kind like these little one and two scene, mm-hmm. not even two scene, like several, like one scene characters. Uh, like even, even a guy who's like a cousin. Oh, the guy with the scar. Does he have a scar? I don't remember, but like he, we see him early. Uh, I, he's a young guy. No, it's, okay. uh, it's a different situation where like, before we know something is wrong. Okay. But we just, we, you know, that's another thing that I love about the progression of the story is as they get closer, they, you start to see small red flags. And so like they, they're told like, Oh, go to this town and talk to this guy. And so they talk to the guy. And even though he doesn't have the same last name and he seems to buy their story, but just the way he carries himself and the way he responds, it's one scene it's a younger guy and and I don't remember his name but like even moments like that it's like I don't I don't think this guy's protecting anyone but he just it's it's like so many scenes that you would see in any Boston movie where someone's like yeah. I don't like questions yeah um yeah. and uh, and it just it's it it eases you into the idea that you are really dealing with something insidious in many ways. Yeah, um, it's a great great movie. I love glad, it. I'm so glad you watched it. And, yeah, and liked it as much. Um, I'll tell you the ins- uh, uh, Natalie and I's entire relationship is built on inside jokes. Uh, but she at one point said like, "What was that Kevin Costner movie you liked last year? Give me back the boy or whatever." <laughs> and so now that's what I always think of. <laughs> I refer to it as "Give me back the boy." Um, all right, moving on. Uh, oh, I can't spend too much time on Sing 2. Oh, okay. It's not good. It's Do you remember... Okay, do you remember... Uh, neither of us saw the new Space Jam, right? Correct. I haven't seen the old Space Jam. Uh, okay, but do you remember you and I we were talking about how in the new one they use like all the different characters yes. and you were like... You said something like, why does that make me sad? <laughs> or whatever. Yeah. The way that the Sing movies use music... Cause it's like the actors doing these, these shortened, like American idol type of like, just it, it flattened out. It makes every, like these are the movies full of great songs that I love, but everything that I love about them has been stripped away. They've they, just been <laughs> yeah. thrown into a blender. It's they're, they're just kitsch. It's, it's some of the most like important popular art of my lifetime and it's just interchangeable with anything else. It's just mm. what they got the rights to. And it, uh, I found, I found the movie depressing. Okay. Can't All right. That. Uh, next for me is, uh, Ronaldo Marcus Green's King Richard. Okay. Well, I, uh, I have seen this, but I talked about it on the AFI festival. Oh, so, oh, okay. so it's not on my list. Today. Okay. Um, Okay, so you talked about it, so you probably said uh, that you didn't care for it. I didn't really care for it. I also did not care for it. Um, 
similar to House of Gucci, but I like House of Gucci more. It's there are a lot of really great elements to it, uh, specifically in in performances. Um, and I think it's a good looking movie. Like it's it, you know it's it's definitely functional. It's really just at a script and concept level that I have. And it, also, I hate the score. Um, oh, I wrote. Uh, did you mention wait. it? Uh, yeah. Did my yeah. review publish? I might need to check and see if I published a review. Oh, okay. But I really mentioned the score. Uh, it's the first thing I mentioned in my review. Oh, man. like It is a like cookie cutter, bad movie score. It is. Li- okay. Listen to this. It's a Christian movie score. <laughs> that's it's okay. the, that's where my mind went. Yeah. When I heard the way that it like just how how cookie cutter it was, but also just like how overblown it was at certain points. I'm like this. A hundred percent reminds me of like the movie Overcomer or whatever, where it's just like we need to really sell the emotion. We're not going to rely on the script or acting or filmmaking. We're going to let the music do that. Uh, I'm talking about Christian film, but it reminded me of that. Um you know, Will Smith is very good. Anjou Ellis especially is great. Their scenes are the best are the best scenes in the film. And the reason that their scenes are the best scenes is because they're the only scenes that are even vaguely introspective uh, <laughs> or, or self-examining uh, about this story. Because it's, you know, it, because you know the ending, you can watch this and think like, oh, wow, this is where that all started. And so that, you know, you are bringing your approval of this, uh, of the ending and and the end result, you're bringing that to the story. And the film is also bringing that to the story, which then allows it to never ask the question, hey, what if they didn't want to play tennis? (laughs) You know, Uh, and and I think the film, it just it's incurious in a very different way. I think about its subject. Uh, and I think the film, there are moments where I'm not exactly sure what the film wants me to feel. Uh, but not in a way I, I, am not opposed to ambiguity, but this isn't a good kind of ambiguity. Like for example, um, when I believe it's, it's Tony Goldwyn, right? Uh, like their first, their first trainer. Yeah. Like when he is working with, 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 uh, Serena, um, or is it Venus that Venus he's working with? V- Venus, yes, yes. Um, he's working with Venus, and meanwhile, Richard is off on the side saying, like, hey, keep that open stance, keep that open stance. And Tony Goldwyn's like, Richard, I need you to focus, let me do this. And he goes, all right, just saying, you're not, you know, you, you don't know everything. Whose side am I supposed to be on here? I get the impression I'm supposed to be on Tony Goldwyn's side. Yeah, yeah. The film doesn't seem to know that like the film is so on board with Richard that uh, that even in those moments where we're supposed to see him as overbearing and all that sort of thing. I think the film refuses to entertain that notion, except in those scenes with Anjanu Ellis. And that's that's why I think those scenes are the most powerful. Well, because I already talked about me, if I fast wrap up episode, all the things I didn't like about it, I will say one thing I did like about it that I think because it doesn't question his overbearingness, but I did like the way that the, the the movie makes the makes the argument that like domineering, overbearing parents aren't actually that rare in tennis. Yes, it's 
Maybe there's something else about Richard Williams that is making people. Sure. What else could? What else is different about Richard Williams sure. than all these other tennis dads? Uh, I, I I did um, I did like that uh, touch, but that's me finding one salvageable thing in a movie I mostly didn't like. And the, and the other the other thing, speaking of that, because like we do see, and I and I think it's a nice it's a nice touch is seeing all of these other tennis parents who refuse to see their kids as still kids. You know, and they, okay, it's yeah. like you're a tennis player and that's all you are right now to me. I'm not going to try and meet you where you are as a child. Um, and so we see Richard sort of responding to that and being like, I am not going to allow that to happen. I am going to make sure that my kids are always kids. And but at times it seems like it feels like he's doing that so that he can feel blameless as opposed to what might actually be best for the kids. But the film doesn't seem to be thinking about that either. Like it's just, it's such a, it just takes so many things at face value. And I don't think it realizes that it's being ambiguous. I think it's just you and I being who we are. We're just asking these questions that I, I'm not sure if it, if they even occurred to the film uh, and to the director and, and the writers. And so uh, so yeah, it was a film that I, f- I often found very frustrating, even though there are, you know, great performances and all that sort of thing. Um, and, and often well executed. Um, but for whatever reason, it's just, I, I couldn't, I couldn't embrace it because I felt like the, the film settled for easy answers so often. All right. Uh, next up for me is a movie. Do you ever love a movie so much that talking or writing about it becomes daunting. Oh, yes. Yes. Um, Paul Thomas Anderson's licorice pizza is, um, a, a beautiful, unique dream of a movie that I don't entirely know how to talk about. Um, I found it, uh, very funny. Like all, I feel like all of Paul Thomas Anderson's movies are, are funny, but only some of them over are comedies. And I would say this one, is maybe not as overtly a comedy as Inherent Vice, but it's certainly the most comedic since Inherent Vice. Okay. Which, I guess, what's in between? Just Phantom Thread? Yeah, that's it. That's it. Yeah, there's a long break there between... What year is Phantom Thread? 2017? 17. So this one is the long break. Yeah, this is this is four, four years, years, and yeah. there's three years, because uh, Inherent Vice was 14, 14. Master was 12. 12. And then there was a five-year break between... There will be blood in the master. Um, wow. Yeah. So. Okay. Um, that that was a fun dis- distraction. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, the the so the movie's very funny, but it's also very very sweet. Uh, I would hesitate to reduce it to the term coming of age story because I don't think that's really what it is. But it's about a sort of chemistry type of relationship, a crush between two people who are not age-wise appropriate for one another. 15-year-old boy and a 25-year-old mm-hmm. woman. Um, but I think the movie also makes the case that this guy, that the, the boy, played by Cooper Hoffman, Philip Seymour Hoffman's son, yeah. is um, he's thinking beyond his teen years and um, I'm already forgetting her name. Uh, Elena? Uh, Alana. That's, Alana, Because yeah. that's her real name, Alana Haim. Mm. Um uh, and her sisters in the movie and her parents in the movie are played by her actual sisters and, mm. and parents. Um, and, and her dad is hilarious in the movie. <laughs> you, uh, I'm assuming you'd tell me by now if you'd seen it. I have uh, not seen it. Yeah. Now. Yeah. There's a part where she has, 
is an emotional like moment where she stormed off and she's walked all the way home wearing a bikini and walks in the front door like angry and like slams the door and goes to her room and her dad who's like watching tv like looks over and goes excuse me what the fuck (laughs) 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 Um, uh, there's so many funny things in the movie but uh but she's also like a sort of case of arrested development so uh, uh you know there there's a there's so much space between 15 and 25 that i think the movie is trying to see characters watch characters try to find a way to cast themselves across that sort of liminal space mm-hmm. that um to to try and see themselves as the type of person who could have a relationship with this person or to see themselves as the type of person who's not in her case. Sometimes she's like, no, I'm 25. I need to like, uh, uh, move on. But, uh, to see the movies very episodic. It is. And so, uh, you see them sort of coming together and coming apart and coming together and coming apart. She's like, you know, pulling back and forth between like, I really enjoy spending time with this teenager, but also I'm not. So I'm going to try and put myself in the company of men who were like too old, like Sean Penn, you know? And it's weird. Like I've, you know, I'm fully aware that I have a double, double standard that like made December romances that go one way. Kind of, I have a kind of a mental block and they go the other way. Uh, it doesn't bother me as much. Hmm. Um, because I, I mean, there are, I could make, uh, you know, I could, I could make, I could try and reason it out, but that's not the point that right. what we're doing here. Um, uh, but I can't remember what else I was, uh, I, I was saying, but, um, amidst all this, you've got the, the Paul Thomas Anderson, just sprinkling sublime moments throughout the movie. Some of them are very tense. Um, there's a part of, yeah, uh, driving a moving truck backwards that is, so tense but in a way that if i weren't wearing a mask you would have seen just a huge grin on my face mm. the entire time um and there's a but then there's also a part with sean penn in a motorcycle on a golf course that is like so it's weird weirdly like menacing but also so weird that it's funny but like beautiful at the same time um i i i, I could I'm trying to avoid doing the thing of just like listing things like parts that I liked. Yeah. Um, but it's like, there's a temptation to do that because the movie's so episodic. Uh, I, I will point out, I, I don't know why there are some characters who are fictionalized versions of real people. Mm-hmm. And then there are some characters who are like Bradley Cooper is playing John Peters, uh, the hairdresser turned movie producer. Who's like okay. with Barbara Streisand, um, not Barbara Streisand, Barbara Streisand. That's a part of the movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and Bradley Cooper's amazing. And then um, Benny Safdie is playing Joel Wax, who I didn't know about, but was an actual um, L.A. City Council member who ran for mayor multiple times. This, mm-hmm. is, uh, this movie takes place during his first mayoral run. So they're playing real people. But Christine Eversall is playing Lucille Ball, but her name's, her character's name is not Lucille Ball. And Sean Penn, Sean Penn is playing William Holden, but his character's name is Jack Holden. Uh, I don't know why, like they, why hmm. Paul Thomas Anderson chose to be like, no, this is that person. This is a version of that person. I don't know if there's something litigious or, uh, uh I don't know, hmm. but, um, uh, yeah. And also, uh, Tom Waits is in it. 
And I, he's a director in it, right? Is he meant to be someone in particular? I, I couldn't tell because okay. he's not, he is a director, but when we meet him, he's not working. He's okay. like Alana is, Alana has like auditioned for a movie, um, that Sean Penn's character is in and he's being kind of a creep takes her out to dinner and they run into a director that he's worked with in the past. Okay. So it's a, it's a scene at a restaurant. So I don't know enough about who William Holden would have worked with, right. um, to, to try and figure out who, uh, Tommy's character is supposed to be, but there are no clues like with Lucille. Even if you didn't know, Christina Bosa's character is played by, is supposed to be Lucille Ball. If you know the movie Years, Mine, and Ours, there's okay. like Under One Roof is what it's called in, a mo- in, in Licorice Pizza, but it's it's so clearly Years, Mine, and Ours that they actually sing the Years, Mine, and Ours hmm. song. There's nothing like that with Tom Waits' character that makes it easy for me. I'm sure our bigger, like, cinephile fans sure. could say, well, actually, he uh, has a lot in common with... Uh, <laughs> I like when you do voices, David. Yeah. It's, uh, it's rare, but it's a delight. All right, anyway, see the Chris Pizza. Yeah, it's it's definitely a, a priority for me, but uh, showtimes didn't work out. I did get to see some movies in the theater, but... Uh, okay, so next up for me is James Samuel's The Harder They Fall. This is a Netflix movie. It is. And, and therefore I, doomed to disappear into exactly, the atmosphere. <laughs> exactly. Uh, which is, which is good because it's I well, uh, I don't, I didn't like it. Um, and it's frustrating cause it's, there's a, I mean, this is the case with a lot of, a lot of these movies. Like I've seen a lot of, you know, end of the year movies that I didn't care for King Richard and, and house of Gucci. And now this one, but there are plenty of people that do like it. But as I was watching it, you know, it's, it's, one of the big things to recommend it is it's it has an amazing cast. Um, and it's this idea. It's like, Oh, it's a Western with, uh, not, not actually an all black cast, but like every major character is, is, uh, African American. And so, um, so it's like, okay, well that's, that's an interesting idea. And the film early, I mean, the first thing it says is like, these are fictionalized versions of these people, but, uh, and then it says like, you know, these people existed. Like it, it, the text on the screen says that one word at a time. Um, and we'll get to that in a moment, but, uh, the film itself, it's someday I would like to do a, uh, an episode about, the impact that Tarantino has had on American film, because we're able to look at all kinds of movies made in the Mm nineties and say, yes, there it's it's so many films are trying to evoke Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs and stuff. Um, You get to this and it definitely is heavily and, and probably unabashedly uh, inspired by Django Unchained and uh, the Hateful Eight, and frankly, even stuff like Kill Bill and Inglorious Bastards, just the way that the scenes uh, are meant to play out uh, and the type of dialogue that the characters have with each other it, it evokes that. And yet, it just, but that's all it feels like it's doing is evoking this thing and it just adds this air of uh, like everybody in the film is clearly having a lot of fun, which I can appreciate on one hand, but that's all it feels like to me is people enjoying being in a Western and, uh, the, the costume designer and the set decorator, uh, the art, uh, product, uh, pr- 
production designer, pardon me, um, just so enjoying making a Western that there's just an inherent superficiality to it all, which doesn't necessarily bother me either, except that the filmmaker seems to want to embrace artifice while also really trying to suggest that there's a lot more going on here. Um, and, and he, and he never convinced me that there was like it. And, and in those moments where he is clearly drawing inspiration from, from Tarantino, just like so many of those movies in the nineties, like, it really shows you that there, that there's really just one of these guys, you know, like the, it's like, yes, this is Tarantino esque dialogue, but it's not Tarantino dialogue. And, and it's, it's often frustrating because you see how, you see how much everybody is, is having fun. But the other, and this, uh, to get back to, to this idea of, of a film, taking itself seriously and wanting you to take it seriously. You know, I, the idea that, that, uh, that all of these characters are based on real people. Mm -hmm. Uh, that's, that's a neat idea that like, Hey, we don't, when we think of the West, we don't think of, of, you know, black cowboys and stuff like that. And so that in itself is a really exciting concept. And then I, so, you know, I went down a Wikipedia hole uh, with all of these people and it's like none of them did any of this, <laughs> which doesn't necessarily bother me. But part of me is like, OK, so essentially you just wanted to make some Tarantino thing, but you wanted to give it more significance than it actually has. So you just took these people and rather than do actually like rather than like celebrate them for, for who they actually were. Right. You you put them, you shoehorn them into this while still trying to trade on the significance of appearing to tell right. their stories. Right. And it really, it really bothered me. It felt, uh, it felt cynical, even though I'm sure that's not why the director did it. And, uh, the film in general, despite the cast, you know, they're, they're doing a good job. And yet I still felt like, I still felt like they were all playing parts instead of being characters. And, uh, it really, it really bummed me out. I was excited to see it. It's also very long. Oh, is it? Yeah. How long? I want to say it's like 215, 220. Maybe okay. even longer than that. But uh, For something with a, like a flippant tone, that, yes. could, that could start to, to wear on you. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's two hours and 19 minutes. Yeah. 219, yeah. Yeah, that's long. Uh, well, you know what movie is mercifully short? What's that? At a mere 98 minutes. Kenneth Branagh's Belfast. Oh, that's one of mine as well. Yes, yeah. I saw it last night. Uh, yeah, I did. I did not... Uh, care for it I wanted to there are, there are Kenneth Branagh movies that I really like he is and, uh, he is for me the, just the definition of a hit and miss director but I'm trying I, I was trying to like go through his filmography and try to figure out what do I like and I think I like him the less seriously he's taking himself mm -hmm. because I like much ado about nothing a lot mm -hmm. Um, I like his Thor, <laughs> yeah. you know, um, you didn't, you didn't see his murder on the Orient Express, did you? No, I didn't. I think you would, yeah, based on this, I think you would love it. Belfast is, I think he's got, he's got too many like Hollywood journeyman director instincts to make that he can't shed to make something 
that is meant to be as personal yeah. as, as Belfast. There are just too many uh, elements of this movie that feel so commercial, which is at odds with him trying to make something so personal. Yeah. Especially, it all, okay, things I want to put a moratorium on. Like, yeah, I know drones make aerial photography cool but they're also so easy to use that if you open your movie with a bunch of drone shots yeah it feels like i'm watching a tv a commercial on tv i was gonna say it, did the belfast chamber of commerce yes. uh, bankroll this it, opening it, sequence it, yeah it, it looks so cheap uh Board and, tourism is what i should have said but go on yeah yeah um yeah i i, I uh so from the opening like uh, shots, I, I didn't like it. I also, the movie's in black and white, except for there are some parts that are in color and the parts that are in color that felt like a very superficial choice. Mm-hmm. Like it, uh, I think I talked about it. It reminded me of mass, how the movie mass, the uh, direct by friend Kranz has a part that changes aspect ratio. And it felt in the moment, so predetermined. So like, oh, I'm going to be clever yeah. And like to comment on what's going on, I'm going to change the aspect. It, 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 and the, the, the use of, of color in, in Belfast also, uh, seemed very cheap and obvious, but that's just the beginning of, uh, yeah. a lot of complaints ahead of, uh, I, I love Katrina Belf. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. She's very good. Yeah. You know what? And, and, and Kieran Hines is, is really good. And it's a, it's a more subtle performance than I was expecting. Okay. Um, and, and Judy Dench, but that's not surprising. Um, but but I mean she's not doing done any favors by the screenplay. True, like playing yes. the the wise old grandma or yeah. whatever. Yeah, and I mean it's a testament to her as an actress that she's able to make the character as specific as she is. Um, yeah, it's the idea of the the moments that are in color. You know what the hell? I'm not. It's like when the character is watching like a a. a a, a color movie on television and in one moment which i think visually looked okay uh, there wa- he's watching a play and yeah. what's on stage is in color and it's a neat idea it's a neat idea but he went too far with it with the reflection in judy dench's glasses yes. also being in color that was right really like it just like why do you why are you putting this like whiz bang type of stuff in your your version of roma and i mean roma yeah. has like some big swings as well but they all seem to come from the same like a, a, a place of honesty if the main character showed us that and, and the film hints at it, but I feel like it doesn't go far enough as far as developing the character that he, that art and drum and drama provides him an escape from a difficult situation. Then the idea of this stuff being in color, feeling more real to him than the, than his actual life. That makes sense to me, but I feel like they don't, they hint at it yeah. very slightly, but not enough to justify that, that, choice in my opinion yeah, yeah I, I think I like the movie more than you do but not much um, it's so you know I'm not opposed to roman- romanticizing childhood I'm not opposed to, to sentimentalizing things but the way that it sentimentalizes it where it's just like his parents are just, just everybody you know his neighborhood is just so you know it's like walking down Sesame Street and everybody has their assigned line that they say as as the kid walks by and then the way his parents you know Jamie Dornan does a, does a fine job but like his dad and his mom there's they're just so noble and so understanding at all times and it just it's 
I don't know. I, I I'm perfectly fine with him not making a a hard hitting, bloody Sunday esque uh, film, but at the same time, I feel like it's it's so sanitized and so safe. And so inorganic and so dishonest in a way. And maybe he honestly thinks back on his childhood this way. But I do also feel like, you know, if I were to make a movie about my childhood, yes, there would be happy moments and I could focus on those and and maybe even play certain things like there's there's a scene where I think our our main characters in the foreground and we see out of focus his his parents like in the kitchen, clearly like having a tense conversation visually I like that this idea that like when you're a kid you're not always familiar you're not always aware of what your parents are are dealing with Mm. um so moments like that I like but there aren't enough of them and the film it just felt so so safe and I just I'm sure it's personal to him but I just felt very distant from it and I just didn't like I saw it last night and I couldn't really tell you much about it. I like, I going back to structure, I like the structure of it. It does feel like a movie about childhood where you have these moments and these moments, but that's in the broadest possible sense because it also, all of the moments themselves are pretty generic. Um, and yeah, it's uh, it was a, it was a frustrating movie. All right. So I think unless Belfast was next on your list, you're next. Uh, correct. Yes. Uh, Next, okay, this is a, a movie I've seen many, many times, uh, but I feel like every time I watch it, I need to bring it up because, like yourself, every time I watch Dark Knight, which I watched in one of my classes, Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight, um, every time I watch it, I have the opposite feeling of the last time I watched it. Yeah. And we've landed on the negative now. Okay. <laughs> um, because even though, you know what, like, visually gorgeous movie, and, and it does pull you in. Man, that I, I'm sure I've said it before, and and I'm sure the next time I watch The Dark Knight, I will like it more than I do now, because uh, that's just how this works. But I have landed back on that script is so clunky mm-hmm. and so yeah. obvious from a structure standpoint. Fine, but and I this is the one that I have said, I'm sure I've said it but before, I, I probably even, on the podcast. I, I don't even know from a structure standpoint. Cause like when I watched it, I'm like, Oh right. There's a whole part where he like goes to Shanghai. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. I, and you know what? I don't, I don't mind that because it shows that like as other character, as I think Joker says, like Batman doesn't have jurisdiction. Like he can do these things. Right. So I was like, okay, I, I like his commitment to what he's doing and showing his re- his considerable resources. I don't mind that. And it's an, and it's a fun sequence. Um, that sequence works best because it's dialogue free. Right. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, but, uh, sorry, I cut you off. Oh, it's fine. Um, the thing that I always, that I always point to, and I, I'm sure I probably have said it on the podcast in the past. Um, that fucking moment when, Bruce Wayne is is throwing a fundraiser for Harvey Dent and he's giving a speech and he's saying and he says he goes look at this face he goes this <laughs> right. is the face of Gotham's bright future it's like okay I wouldn't normally say this with a superhero movie, but Nolan is trying so hard to make this realistic that I'm perfectly fine to say no one in the world would ever say this look at right. this face 
not referring to their own face, by the way. So, like <laughs> saying it, it's like, "Hi, I'm a well, gr- I'm a grown man saying yeah. this to, about another grown man." It feels so very wrong, and it's like, and Aaron yeah. Aaron Eckhart doesn't I mean, it have this. It seems like it's something like my mother in law would say, exactly, "Like, look at this face." Exactly. Yes, it's something that you know, uh, Aunt May, which admittedly that's Marvel, not DC. Aunt May might say right. about Peter Parker, but obviously, I know why they said it. They said it because this is the face of. This right. is the faces oh, of <laughs> of Gotham's bright future. And it's just it's it's stuff like that where uh, we're like, I, I, yeah, I, I understand that you feel like you have to do this, but you really didn't. You did not. Need, you don't need to foreshadow shit. You're foreshadowing enough. Like in watching it this time, I was like, they really do use shadow quite a bit to show to split mm. dense face in half. And it's and and it's like oh it's a visual representation that's enough even that might be a little bit overblown but that's enough you don't have to keep saying stuff like that um, and yeah just the and and even frankly a lot of a lot of Joker's lines they're just so it's okay I don't know what you'd call like <laughs> it's like pop villainy. Uh, it's like pop, like you hear like pop psychology. It's like okay. pop villainy yeah, yeah. where, uh, but even, but a combination of the two where it's like, Oh, the character, this villain is philosophical, but the stuff he's saying, is just like, Oh, he, okay. So Joker clearly went to college for one year, uh, took a psychology class, uh, t- sorry, took a philosophy class and then dropped out. Uh, and, but he re- it really made an impact. And so, yeah, it's, uh, despite a, a great, you know, great looking see, uh, film and some really solid action sequences. And, you know, I mean that, that, uh, that semi flipping over vertically yeah. is one of the most amazing things I've ever seen. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm back on the side of being frustrated by the movie, uh, on a, from a specifically a dialogue standpoint. Well, I look forward to talking about it in more positive. Yeah, next, time, <laughs> next time I'll, 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 I'll love it. Uh, all right, so next up is the other movie that I agreed to go see because I would be getting free wine, wine and food, okay. food afterwards. But this one, Old Henry was a pleasant surprise. This movie is flat out great. Okay. Which I snob that I am. Usually when I hear like, oh, this movie is the official Oscar submission from this country, I'm like, this is not going to be the best movie from this right. country this year. Yeah. This is, But I don't know. India got it right. Uh, I don't know how they decided to pick this movie, but... Uh, the director's name is P.S. Vinothraj, and the movie is called Pebbles. And um, uh, P.S. Vinothraj, if you want to know the backstory, uh, works in it is from a, a tiny town uh, in India. Worked in like a DVD store. Doesn't speak English, but would watch American movies hmm. and became obsessed with them and decided he wanted to make a movie uh, on his own based on his. Uh, uh, asshole alcoholic brother-in-law and his nephew. Okay. <laughs> and so basically you've got this movie. It's only 75 minutes long, if even that. Um, and like, I swear like seven minutes of that is the end titles um, where uh, a boy is pulled out of school by his father and they go walk to his mother's, like his grandmother's house. Because we, we, we piece together like, oh, this dude's wife has left him. He's going to try and get her to come back to him by bringing their son 
to see the wife. And basically, so basically it's just a movie of this father and son, uh, walking through like the desert sort of terrain, um, and, and various different things, uh, uh, happen to them or happen around them. They meet different people, but it has this, uh, in- incredibly lively dynamic visual sense, even while there are just, and a, a great, great sound design. I'm not sure, uh, if that's from the director, or if that happened in post or whatever, but like just long shots of the camera, like following around to people. And all you can hear is just like, but like soft, like mm. because it's on sand and they're barefoot. And it, like you, you just hear them like that crunch of like sand yeah. under uh, a soft crunch of like sand under bare feet. Um, but different things are, are, are happening. There are different like asides. There's a, we, there's a family we visit a couple of times have nothing to do with the movie. Uh, but they, um, we see their methodology of how they get food, which is to like smoke these little gophers out of holes and then, catch them when they come out the other side and then i'll say the movie starts with a no animals were harmed thing i doubt <laughs> and unless there's some really good uh um prosthetic like fake rats yeah uh seeing the, we see these rat gopher things be prepared to be cooked and it is not pleasant okay. um so that is a, a word of, of of warning uh natalie came with me to that and uh she definitely hit her eyes during during that part Oh, excuse me. Um, but the movie is like, it's, it's very, um, upsetting, you know, this is, it's about an alcoholic abusive father, but it's also weirdly like funny. I used the word lively before it has, uh, a, a, a great sense of pace and, and timing and, and emotion. Um, there's something else I was going to say that I'm forgetting because I can't stop. I'm so like stuffed up right now. Oh man. Um, Oh, what else is I going to say about it? Oh, it also reminded me... Uh, okay, there's a movie that is not in Indian. I think it's Indonesian from a couple of years ago called um, uh, Jolly Katu that I saw at AFI Fest 2019. And the men in that movie wear... They're not pants. It's like it's almost like they're wearing like a blanket wrapped around themselves as, okay. as pants. And that's what the dad wears in this. And... I kept thinking about Jelly Katu because there's a thing. These guys are running around. That's that movie is also very lively. There's a lot of people running and every time they stop, they have to like, like imagine if you get out of the shower, you're wearing a towel on your waist, yeah. you, you move around, you go, oh, you want to make sure it's tight. Yeah. So like every time they stop, they have to like kind of tighten it again. And that, that same motion keeps happening in, in this movie. And it has a, it has a similar, uh, I'm not sure if maybe, uh, Maybe P.S. Vinathraj saw Jalakatu because the oh, there's also like a shutter speed type thing, uh, kind of that like Saving Private Ryan like high like I don't know if it's, is, that a, is that a high shutter speed or a low shutter speed. But you know what I'm talking about when like right. pieces of dirt get kicked up and you can see them like yeah. uh, bit by bit. It's because you're it's still 24 frames a second, but you're exposing. Normally, you only expose the film or the image into this digital, but uh, for half half the half that, so you're seeing 24 frames a second, but you're normally only seeing a twelve, like a like a, a twelfth of a second in each mm-hmm. frame. I'm saying I know you all, you know this. I'm saying it for the listeners. So the way you get the like Saving Private Ryan thing is you adjust the, the shutter so the shutter is actually closed for more than a 24th of a second. So you're like, you're still getting 24 frames a second, but each frame represents an even smaller 
part of being exposed to the world and that's why you uh get that 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 sharp look when you can see the sand individual grains of sand as it kicks up anyway that's your little like film school lesson for today in case you didn't know that Uh, and that's kind of the look of this movie too uh it's fantastic i it's it's so great pebbles okay so uh my okay so my last film is actually belfast which is the one after this so we'll we'll have to end uh on yours but first uh i wanted to mention uh natalie biancheri i don't know if that's how you say the name um the film is wolf uh which i i uh saw and and reviewed for battleship pretension um Boy, it's it's a movie that I mostly didn't care for, and as far as I can tell, a lot of other critics didn't either. Um, but and what's more is like my my issue with it was one that uh, that I was happy to see, like I was reluctant to write the stuff that I wrote about it, uh, but I was happy to see that other critics did as well, which is which you know is, can be reassuring sometimes because yeah. the film's essentially an, an allegory. And it's a pretty obvious one. Um, where uh, George McKay of uh, 1917 and, and various other uh, films and TV shows, uh, he he's his parents are. I, so I don't know. I don't know what age he's meant to be. Certainly younger. I don't know if he lives with his parents or or whatever. But his parents are uh, checking him into a facility uh, because he believes himself to be like a, a wolf yeah. uh, trapped in in a in a human's body. Um, this is something that. That does exist. Uh, this uh, this uh, state of mind, and this facility specializes in that. And the the head of the facility is played by uh, Patty Considine. Um And so, so we see you know other young people. Uh, each they all believe themselves to be different animals, and so you, we see them at various levels of of their treatment and. Uh, some of the treatment is fairly uh, light and then some of it is often very cruel uh, and you know it's the, the film itself is meant to be a, an allegory for a couple of things I would say um, the idea of of a person you know of a transgender person feeling like well who I am outside is different than who I who I am inside like or or the I I'm I'm at war with with myself in this regard. Like I don't feel that I am in the right body. Um, uh, so it's meant to be a, a, a allegory for that. And then the, the institution itself I think is meant to be an allegory for, uh, like gay conversion therapy and, and stuff like that. Um, and so, so, okay. Uh, that is clear pretty quick. Uh, and then the film just is very repetitive where George McKay like wants to be a wolf and then the facility pushes him again, pushes against him. And then he wants to be a wolf and they push a little harder and just back and forth and back and forth. So it's a little bit repetitive, no real growth there. Um, good look. I mean, it's, it's good looking. It's a, it's, and you really get a sense of place from, from the, the facility. It feels like a place that could actually, uh, exist. And then, um, and the performances are good all around. George McKay, uh, as we see from 1917, he's very physical. Uh, and so his, his, what he's able to do with his body when he is in sort of wolf mode, I, they certainly don't refer to it that way, um, is, is really 
remarkable. Um, and then there's a, an actor named, uh, I don't know. It's Irish, uh, F I O N N. It's a Finn, probably. Finn, yeah. yeah. Uh, Finn O'Shea, who, uh, his, his character, he's a, he's a young man who thinks he's uh, a German shepherd. And so his energy is very, mm. very like eager to please and stuff like that. And it's, it's that to me, his performance is my favorite in the film. Um, but, uh, so a, you get the, you get the allegory quick and then it doesn't do anything with it. Um, but then it, the film actually got me thinking in terms of like, like I would love to do an episode about allegory, Mm -hmm. what it is, when it works and when it doesn't, because in my opinion, this doesn't because, you know, you see one could say like, oh, well, it's, you know, hey, these kids believing that they're animals like that's a harmless thing. It's like, yeah, but it's not harmless because if left to their own devices, they will go and live naked in the woods where they could pro- probably die of exposure yeah. uh, and starvation uh, to say nothing of actually attacking each other um, and other people. So like it's, it is a different thing than in my opinion, uh, than a, a transgender right. situation. And so I found myself wondering, it's like, you know, if I were transgender, I think I might find this movie insulting. Right. Um, and, but that's the thing is you get the allegory so early that in a way it's counting on you to know, to understand what it is allegorizing. That's not the right word. Like it's it. counting on you to understand that so that you will accept the allegory so that you can be convinced by the allegory. Like, and so it got me thinking like, well, why does allegory work? And so of course I, I first thought of the crucible and it's like, because that works because we all agree that the Salem witch trials were terrible. Mm-hmm. There's nobody that won't agree with that. Okay. So it leads with that, something that everyone can agree on. And then it uses that to bring us into something that people at the time might not have agreed on, which is the evils of McCarthyism. So here it, the situation that, it, that it's putting out there is not one that I agree agreed with like the the reality of the film is not one i agreed with i thought that while the methods of the facility are were quite awful mm-hmm. it's like yeah but i also don't want this guy to live as a wolf and go off into the woods naked yeah and die of exposure you know and so it's like so the 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 first thing you have to do with an with, with an allegory is be kind of obvious and be pretty universally uh, understood and I think the film, I think the director does, writer director doesn't understand that. And so the film was often very frustrating to me. Uh, and yeah, it's, uh, and, and as I was, as I was writing that, uh, I wasn't sure. It's like, uh, am I just, am I, am I wrong in my thinking? Uh, am I, should I be more on board with the idea of somebody thinking they're a different species, uh, than I am? Is that, uh, is that the case? And I looked at other reviews and, uh, I'm not alone in my thinking because again, it can be very, it can be genuinely dangerous, uh, right. physically for the person right. that, and people around them as well. Um, so more than anything, it's just like a very tragic thing. And by the way, in case you didn't get the fucking allegory, uh, Patty Considine, the guy who runs, uh, the facility and is quite cruel to, to the, the patients. Um, oh no! His uh, yeah. Oh, oh no. get ready. Now his nickname is the zookeeper. Okay, 
His actual name is Dr. Man. <laughs> okay, that's not where I thought you were going. Oh, okay. I thought it was going to be like, like at night when he locks the door to his office, he acts like a chipmunk or something. <laughs> you know what? Uh, there is a scene that's not that far from what you're okay. talking about. But yeah, so it's, uh, it, it's, it's unfortunate because the cast is very, as they would have to be, they're very committed to their, to their roles. And I, and I think it's a good looking movie, but I think it's just yeah. very misguided in its allegory. Um, when you mentioned George McKay was in 1917, I was like, but he was in something good too, right? Uh, and it reminded me that he plays Ned Kelly in Justin yes, Kersel's True History of the Kelly Game, which is a great movie. Yeah. Um, all right. Uh, next up for me is uh, not an anticipated movie, but a movie that I came away being completely at war with myself on. Okay. Steven Spielberg's West Side Story. You know, I'm at war with myself. I haven't seen it, but I'm at war with myself uh, as far as my level of interest. On one hand, I don't give a shit. <laughs> yeah, On the was... other, I mildly give a shit. But, uh, okay. The second part of that, you should. Steven Spielberg, as a crafter of cinema, mm-hmm. is absolutely working at the top of his game here. Okay. West Side Story is awesome in many ways. Right. But I still found myself constantly while watching the movie coming back to this question of like, why did, why did he do this? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> why, why, does, why did this happen? Why does this exist? And now the movie, the, the main reason, I, or not the main reason, but the main argument you could say for if you'd say like, what's that story is a classic? Why would you need to update that? The main argument you can make, well, is, well, in Steven Spielberg's version, all of the Latino characters are played by Latino actors. Yes, yeah, and that might and, be enough of an argument. I think. Uh, yeah, and that's that, that's that's uh, very well done. Um, I very much uh, appreciated the decision to not subtitle any of the Spanish spoken in the movie, mm. of which there is not. You know, no, 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 don't worry. If you don't speak Spanish, you're going to follow the movie. Yeah. But there's not an inconsiderable amount of of Spanish spoken in the movie, and none of it is subtitled. I liked that. I also think the movie this is why I say at war with myself because I feel like on the one hand Spielberg addressed some other hangups that I've had about 1961 uh, 1960 61 61 61's West Side Story but I've also gotten to a place in my life where I have come to terms with the fact that my problems with 1961's West Side Story are my problem okay <laughs> not the movie's problem which is that like I mean, you weren't on this episode. We actually talked about this a little bit. I talked about this a little bit on the TCM Classic, uh, TCM Classic Film Festival uh, um, wrap up back in that would have been like April, I guess, or early May. Um, the like whole like joke everyone knows about West Side Story is that like they're supposed to be a tough street gang, but they dance around or whatever. Sure. That actually always has been kind of a barrier for me hmm. because I think it. Uh, um, for me, it always felt like, how am I supposed to buy what the stakes are here? Sure. They seem like little kids playing like Ford, but then they're actually like fucking stabbing each other and shit. And so Spielberg's West side story, I think the stakes feel higher. Hmm. It is a more uh, in the scenes that call for this. It is a more harder edged, more specifically like calibrated 
thing. But I, again, I had gotten to the place where I was like, this is my problem. I'm not, well, right. I, I'm the one who has a problem for not getting on the movie's level. I didn't need Tony Kushner to come across, come around and rewrite the screenplay to address that problem. Cause now I feel like it's talking down to me by, by, by like specifically address saying, it. I'm, I'm curious. Well, you get uh, Corey Stoll's character. Um, you, you get him talking more specifically about what is happening in this neighborhood. Okay. That it's it, like it's, um, it's beyond just like, you know, it's, I, I think that's a big part of why I always thought like a turf war just felt like kids playing. Sure. But like you get some of the background of the neighborhood from his speech and it's like, it's Tony Kushner's, even though it's a, it's a expository speech that Corey Stoll has at the beginning of the movie. It's very well written and Corey Stoll is great and he yeah. delivers it great. So I didn't hate, like it wasn't unpleasant, but I, I, I kept feeling, feeling like, did you, is this the one? Okay changing like correcting the casting issues mm-hmm. of West Side Story is worthwhile. This feels like you think you're better than Robert Weiss's West mm-hmm. Side Story in a little in in some ways. Um or do you think maybe it's not that they think they're better so much as they think the modern audience is worse. And, uh, and maybe and, that's and, and uh, unwilling to accept this kind of movie. Yeah, and maybe that's what I had a problem with too. Um but uh, it's a real hang up that I'm having with my like my feelings about the movie, my experience of the movie. Uh, but I'll say all that aside, it's still an incredibly well-made movie. It looks beautiful. I mean, I know Janusz Kaminski always looks beautiful, but I think yeah. one of the things I was afraid of was the idea that like, oh, he's going to take this because West Side Story 1961 is also a beautiful movie. And the idea like you're going to take that and make it look all like um what's the word? I, I don't know, like digital and airbrushed and like washed out. Uh, and no, uh, not, not like it actually is kind of washed out, but in a good way, I think okay. because it makes it feel more textured, hmm. which makes it feel like it doesn't feel like you're watching, even though you know who Ansel Gord is, you doesn't feel like you're watching pe- kids of today play dress up, which right. is what I was afraid of. Um, it actually does feel like the real thing. The uh, choreography is stunning, both of the characters and the camera. He also, like, there's so many iconic musical numbers in West Side Story um, that he he reinterprets the choreography and also sets certain things in different places. So, like, uh, what is it, like, Keep Cool Boy, which is, like, in, like, yeah. a garage, like, a big like industrial garage and in the this one is now it's outside on a pier that's like a a a pier that's fallen into disrepair so Mm -hmm. there's like holes in the like it finds new places to to set the things it's it's an incredibly enjoyable uh movie that i um i have very few problems with except that the problems that i do have are cutting me to my core (laughs) Uh, all right. No, your uh, next is Belfast. Yeah. And my next is House of Gucci. So we're done.